When the Lights Go On Again, Chapter 19 Jan stared out the window at the helicarrier silhouetted against the blue sky and blinked suddenly wet eyes, fighting the urge to laugh with relief. It was over. It was finally, blessedly over. No more hiding. No more sneaking into the enemy's bases again and again, knowing that capture meant probably torture and certain death, and having to walk out and leave Clint and Tony in their hands over and over. No more watching people die. No more watching Hank drive himself half-crazy under a de facto house arrest because the aliens had put a price on his head. The fact that the shield was down now meant that he was all right. It had to. Hank was smart, was cautious when he wasn't being horrifyingly, stupidly reckless. He would have stayed small, stayed hidden, waited for them to come for him. Tony hadn't given him up. The Argonians had no idea he was even there. There's something I have to do, Steve said, and turned away from the radio before Sam had even answered. He was going after Tony, Jan knew without even having to ask. Ben and I will take the prisoners to the lobby and put them under armed guard, she said, either to Steve or Sam and Fury, whichever was listening. Good, Steve said. Do that. You. He pointed at the Argonian soldier. She wore the shoulder epaulets of an arch-captain, which meant that this was either arch-captain Mamitu or arch-captain Kamani. Come with me. You're going to take me to the scientist you captured. The arch-captain darted a glance at the Archon, gesturing from Steve to herself to the door, and the Archon inclined her head and said something in Argonian. Jan stepped forward and took hold of her arm, determinedly ignoring the fact that the Archon towered over her by nearly a foot. The fabric of her blue robe was heavy but soft, made from some fiber Jan didn't recognize, probably of alien origin. The copper beadwork that covered it had obviously been done by hand. We're taking you into protective custody, she said. Please don't stab me. The Archon had stiffened at her touch, but the Arch-Captain, now being marched towards the door by Steve, stopped in her tracks and said something, and the alien woman relaxed and let Jan guide her over to where Ben stood. Steve, Fury's voice cracked over the radio link. Rogers, damn it, where did you go? He's busy, Jan told him as Steve nearly dragged the Arch-Captain out of the room. We can't stay here. We have prisoners and casualties to deal with. You'll need to send someone down. War Machine and I will meet you in the Grand Concourse, Sam said in tones that dared Fury to contradict him. Jan suppressed a half-hysterical urge to laugh. It seemed like she was always meeting people in that damn lobby. By the clock, she said. Of course you'll meet me by the clock. The lobby was still every bit as much of a bloodbath, the chaos augmented by the addition of several dozen humans in grey lab coats, most of them pale and gaunt. The captive scientists. Several of them were laid out on the floor while resistance members tended their wounds. Spider-Man was bent over one of them, spraying a huge laceration in her thigh with web fluid. Clever. If the goo that came out of his web cartridges was anything like real spider webbing, it would be ideal for packing wounds with. And why did she know these things when Hank, despite having spent nearly a decade in her company, 
still didn't know what a bias cut was or that you weren't supposed to wear white shoes after Labor Day. Jan crossed the room to where he knelt, Ben and Yarkon in tow. Does anyone here speak Argonian? she asked. Jan wouldn't have recognized the scientist who raised his hand as Dr. Octavius if it weren't for the tentacles sprouting from his back. His normally stocky frame was thin, and he was as pale and ill-looking as all the others. His awful bowl cut was gone too, and the standard grey lab coat looked much better on him really than green spandex ever had. I have no idea whether the rest of the idiots I was imprisoned with have managed to learn it, but I am fluent. Does anyone else speak Argonian? Spider-Man asked. Another scientist, this one a woman whose dark skin looked almost as grey as her clothing from exhaustion and malnutrition, tentatively raised her hand. Great, Ben said. You can come with me. Her Highness here is going to broadcast a general surrender, and we need you to listen to what she says and make sure she doesn't try anything funny. They're surrendering? Really? Somehow Spider-Man's mask managed to convey shock and delight. I can barely believe it either, Jan admitted. Cap defeated their head general in single combat, and then the shield came down and the helicarrier showed up and... Spider-Man's shout of glee cut her off mid-sentence. There was a minor commotion by the entranceway, and Jan turned to see a handful of men in shield uniforms entering the building. For one frozen, joyful moment, she thought the armored figure that accompanied them was Tony. Then logic kicked in, and she recognized War Machine, his black and gray armor, now a patchwork of his and Tony's colors, pieces of red and gold metal replacing nearly a quarter of the original War Machine suit. It had obviously been a long five months outside New York, too. "'Where's Hank?' she asked Spider-Man, not taking her eyes away from the blessed sight of reinforcements pouring into the room. "'Is he still downstairs with Clint and the others?' I don't know. His voice was suddenly much less gleeful. We never saw him. He gave Dr. Connors the chip Tony built to reactivate Doc Ock's tentacles yesterday, and then he just disappeared. I'm, um, sure they didn't catch him, though. He didn't call for help, and he could have, you know, with the helmet. I would have heard it and he couldn't have sent me the signal for the attack if they'd caught him. You never saw him? The sick, hollow feeling in the pit of her stomach was an overreaction, she told herself. Hank was fine. He was probably hiding somewhere, waiting for the commotion to be over before he came out. That was a completely plausible thing for Hank to do. Jan winced. Of course it wasn't. Hank would never sit on the sidelines in a fight like this, not after the way he'd been chafing to get in on the action for months. Something had happened to him. You deal with S.H.I.E.L.D., Jan said. I'm going to go find him. Me? Spider-Man yelped. Jan turned and walked away, not waiting for the panicked babbling about how he couldn't possibly do this that was sure to follow. She heard enough of that from Hank. The sodium ascorbate had been delivered and taken effect, which meant that, if nothing else, Hank had to have been at the water filtration system. She would start there. She would find him and he would be fine. Tony didn't give him up. He would be fine. 
She was trying not to think about Tony too hard, because there was a very strong possibility that he was dead and Steve was not going to handle that well. She wasn't going to handle that well when she had time to think about it and let it sink in. She'd known Tony since she was 20 years old. She couldn't really imagine him being gone any more than she could imagine losing Steve or Clint or Thor. If he was dead, she thought, the team might not survive it. The hallway that led to Metro North platform was empty of anything living. There were bodies lying crumpled on the floor, a human and Argonian, but only a few. The main fighting had all taken place in the Grand Concourse. She thought he was just another body at first, until she saw the bright blue and gold of his costume. Everything around her seemed to freeze. She couldn't feel the ground under her feet anymore, and walking over to where Hank lay curled in on himself, in a bloody heap against the wall, felt weirdly like flying. Hank was the one who had given her wings. Please, she begged silently, dropping to her knees beside him. The floor around him was tacky with blood, the knees of her costume were going to be covered with it. She'd worn this costume for months, it needed to go anyway. Hank didn't stir when she touched him, his skin was cool, clammy, and his lips were bloodlessly pale, and Hank, she said, shaking him, oh god, there was blood all over him, so much blood, and the right sleeve of his costume was singed brown, and... Hank, wake up! She touched his throat, feeling for a pulse, and closed her eyes when she felt a fluttery beat under her fingers. Then another, and another, rapid and faint. Still alive. He was still alive. He needed help, right now, before any more of his blood ended up outside his body rather than inside it. I need help out here, Jan shouted, her voice coming out high and shrill. Hank twitched slightly at the sound, and Jan reached down to brush his hair out of his face. The dark blonde strands were soft under her fingers. It was too long. He always let it grow too long before she reminded him to cut it. How long had he been here? Lying here on the cold marble, bleeding out, so painfully, horribly close to help. He had tried to tell her goodbye before he left, tried to tell her he loved her. She hadn't let him. She'd insisted that they could talk when he came back, wanted to put off explaining that stupid kiss with Clint as long as possible, been angry at him for leaving, for putting himself in danger. If he died, he had to know she loved him, had to know she'd forgiven him. I hate you, she whispered, her throat so tight and raw that she could barely get the words out. You think you're invincible. You think you always know better than everyone else. You stupid, brave, stupid jerk. Hank groaned faintly, eyelids flickering open. Jenny. He stared up at her with unfocused eyes, pupils dilated wide. Live, Jan said, or I'll kill you. Hank smiled slightly, his eyes sliding close again. You're pretty when you're mad, Jenny. Jan sniffed, blinking hot tears out of her eyes. Don't call me that, Hank. I hate that nickname. 
She was pressing both hands against the stab wound in Hank's thigh, trying to use the torn-off sleeve of her costume to staunch the blood flow when Clint came skidding around the corner. Jan, I heard you... He broke off, staring at Hank. Damn it. First Pietro and now... His voice caught and he shook his head hard, as if trying to jar himself back into some kind of composure. Then he was kneeling next to Jan, peering at Hank's leg. It was still bleeding, a slow trickle of red staining the blue silk in her hands black. Clint swore again. He's been stabbed by one of their scorpion tails. A sword or knife wound wouldn't be... wouldn't be all ragged like that. We need to get him to a doctor. He hesitated, looking back up at Jan. She knew what she must look like, her face tear-streaked and her costume half-ripped away. Clint didn't seem to really see her, though. His eyes seemed to stare right through her, focused on something an indefinable distance away. Oh, fuck, and they're poisonous. Did he have any of his own antidote on him? Or can't he even do that right? Shut up, Clint! Jan snapped. Anger felt good. It drove the sick, shaky fear that seemed to permeate her entire body away. Clint blinked, suddenly looking like a wounded puppy. I didn't mean it like that. I... Go get help, she snarled, and leaned more of her weight onto her hands. Hank made a faint sound when she did so. She was probably hurting him. She didn't have any other choice. Clint stood his movements tired and slow. He put one hand on Jan's shoulder for a second, his palm hot against her bare skin, and then he was gone. She didn't look up. All of her attention was focused on Hank's face, pale and tense with pain. You're going to be all right, do you hear me? She said, her voice shaking. The anger at Clint had gone as quickly as it had come, and she didn't bother trying to hold back tears anymore. You're going to be all right. From the corner of your eye, shield uniforms looked an awful lot like Argonian uniforms, until Clint turned, his hand going to the hilt of his sword or the butt of his plasma gun every time, and saw that the person who'd moved out of the corner of his vision was wearing black spandex and Kevlar, instead of the high-collared, copper-decorated, steampunk Nazi outfits he'd spent what felt like half his life surrounded by. The main hall of Grand Central was full of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents now, as well as soldiers and marines in fatigues, all of them armed and organized and, occasionally, visibly disappointed or relieved that there were no enemies left to fight. Cap had somehow gotten the entire Argonian Empire to surrender to him. Because he was Captain America, and he did things like that. Convincing the cavalry that the fight was actually over, though, was taking a while. Clint didn't blame them. He couldn't really believe it either. I think you guys interrupted some kind of military coup, Rose was saying, nodding at the Archon, who was currently speaking to Fury via Isamud's efforts as a translator. She doesn't seem very upset that her head general just got killed. Well, no, Clint said, without thinking. We all hated him. His right-hand woman was a nasty-tempered bitch who liked to slap her subordinates around. Only half his attention was really on their conversation. Beyond Rhodes' armored shoulder, 
Two army medics were loading Pietro onto a stretcher. He was pale and bloody, and still looked nearly as dead as he had in that cell, except for the addition of what looked like an entire roll of gauze bandaging around his chest. Wanda was following a step behind the stretcher, not quite hovering and obviously trying to stay out of the medic's way. She looked reassuringly non-crazy. He still didn't know how Carol had snapped her out of it. For a few moments, Clint had thought he was about to lose both of his oldest teammates, and probably die himself moments later in some kind of magic-fueled explosion. They had hacked up Petro bad, bad enough that it was a miracle he was still alive. Like the guard they'd executed. Like the soldiers in Times Square. If he died... Would they have displayed his body in pieces, like the others? Clint had thought he'd seen a lot of horrible things during his career as Hawkeye, but even the Kree scroll war hadn't prepared him for what a real war felt like. He'd seen teammates die before. Bobby, convulsing in his arms as Mephisto's fireball struck her. And God, he'd been able to smell her skin and costume burning, just like the Argonians' plasma guns but not like this. Not so many people at once. They'd still been clearing the dead bodies out of the entrance hall when he and Jan had brought Hank in. Some of them were people Clint had killed himself. Men and Argonians he had trained with and served with, lying through his teeth while he made nice and saluted and pretended to respect them. He could have shot to injure rather than kill. He had perfect aim after all. He never missed. He'd never thought killing would be this easy, and now he was shooting people with guns that burned holes through them, and he'd held a sword to the throat of someone he knew, someone he liked, and threatened to cut their throat if they didn't do what he wanted. What was it like? Rhodes asked. Working for them. It sucked, Clint said flatly. Rhodes' black and silver helmet nodded. It was strange, talking to someone in full armor again. He hadn't seen Tony wearing his in months, and the red and gold pieces patched into War Machine's familiar black and silver suit were disconcerting, like talking to someone who was wearing the wrong costume. I figured. It was bad enough fighting them. A shoulder-mounted anti-take rifle would take out just about anything, including some of your less powerful demons, if you load the right kind of ammo but it didn't even make a dent in their energy shields. Clint's lips twitched, and he fought down the sudden urge to grin. It wouldn't be right, not when the blood hadn't even finished drying on the station's marble floor. Tony spent months trying to figure out how to take that thing down. He's going to be livid when he hears that Wanda finally did it with magic. Tony's okay? I thought... Rhodes' voice sounded strained, even through the helmet's filters. Hogan and Pepper brought me his armor. They said he wanted me to use it for spare parts. The alien said he was working for them, but he gave his armor to me. Again. Tony's... Clint started, and then his throat closed up again. I don't know, he managed. He went back under so that we could get Hank inside. 
He nodded to where Hank lay stretched out on the floor, a saline drip running into one arm. They were taking the most seriously wounded up to the helicarrier first. Hank had had an antidote on him when one of the Argonians had stabbed him. The scientists hadn't had access to the antivenom. They've got Tony locked up somewhere. I don't know where. His throat felt tight and his eyes were hot. Clint realized with horror that he was on the verge of tears and he blinked hard, swallowing. Cap's looking for him, he finished. And he was going to find him. Tony couldn't be dead, not after all of this. Not after Clint had spent so long trying to keep him alive. Damn it, he didn't have time to break down now. The hell was wrong with him? It was over. They'd won. Everything was going to be okay now. They were all going to be safe, and it was okay, and there was no reason for him to fall apart like an idiot. That doesn't sound good, Rhodes said carefully. No, Clint agreed. The disturbance at the far end of the room was small, just a few people turning to look, a conversation falling silent, but Clint's nerves were on edge as it was, and after months of trying to avoid setting off Argonian suspicions, anything Argonians did that was out of the ordinary was nerve-wracking. It took a moment for him to recognize the Argonian officer who had just entered the room as Arch-Captain Kamani. Her uniform was torn and bloody, she was limping, and one of her ears was bandaged. The sense of relief he felt upon seeing her was... fucked up, that's what it was. She'd essentially been his jailer for months, one of them anyway. She crossed the room to Clint, her boot heels ringing on the marble, and he stiffened, his heart rate speeding up. Stay calm, he told himself. Be respectful. Don't let her. He cut the thought off and forced himself not to come to attention as she drew nearer. When she stopped in front of Isamud, still standing awkwardly with bound hands by the dispirited huddle of captive Mechanicos, Clint felt his muscles slowly relax, breathing in an inward sigh of relief, and then kicked himself for it. She leaned forward, rubbing her cheek against the other Argonians. Isamud went stiff his ears springing upright in surprise, then relaxed as she said in Argonian. I am glad that you live, Mechanicosissimud. I am also glad, Isimud stammered out. How long had that been going on? Clint wondered. Could he have used it to their advantage if he had known about it before? He hadn't realized that warriors and Mechanicos could be involved with one another. Maybe they couldn't. Maybe this was some kind of forbidden romance. That could have also been useful. Sloppy, Barton. He really should have noticed it before now. Then she straightened, turning away from Missimud, and began walking towards Clint again. Beside him, he could hear the whine of War Machine's shoulder cannon powering up. As threats went, it wasn't particularly subtle but it tended to be effective. Clint put a hand on the hilt of his plasma gun, shifting his weight to the balls of his feet in preparation for an attack. 
She could probably mop the floor with him, but not before road shutter full of large holes. Your commander requires assistance, she said, coming to a halt several non-threatening feet away. Clint stared at her blankly for a moment, before realizing that she probably meant Cap. What do you... he started, and then, from the corner of his eye, he caught a flash of bright red and blue entering the room. Cap. He was walking slowly, carefully, Tony cradled in his arms, bloody and unmoving. You must understand, Arch-Captain Kamani was saying as she led Steve away from the Archon's apartments. She had insisted on introducing herself. Steve wondered if Argonians learned the same protocols for dealing with hostage situations that humans did. I took no pleasure in the treatment we were forced to subject him to, to treat a mechanicos thus. Her ears pulled back like a cat telegraphing distaste. It is not right. They are gentle, not warriors, but the circumstances... Let me guess, Steve interrupted, reminding himself that if he cold-cocked her before they got there, it would take him longer to find Tony. You were just following orders. She blinked at him, then inclined her head. Of course, she said. You are a warrior also. You understand. Sometimes personal honor must be sacrificed for the good of the Empire. On this planet, Steve snarled. We execute people for that. She didn't try to speak to him after that. Steve was glad of it. He didn't want to see her as a person, not when he knew she had watched Tony being tortured, probably participated in it. Just thinking about that and knowing that she was only a few feet away, close enough that he could smell her fur and hear the clinking of her boots on the marble floor, close enough to hit for him to be able to reach out and grab hold of her before she would have a chance to react, made him feel sick. He would probably be able to break her neck before she nailed him with her tail barb. The fact that he could imagine doing it so easily made him feel sick, too. He didn't like feeling this kind of anger. It made him feel violent, out of control, his chest and stomach aching with it. The platform is just ahead, Kamani said, sounding as if she were giving him a tour, not as if she was about to show him where her commanding officer had had a human being imprisoned and tortured. The Imperator wanted him kept separate from the other rebels, just in case. She didn't say in case of what. Steve didn't ask. The subway platform was nearly unrecognizable. The last time Steve had been here, or in some other platform under Grand Central that was indistinguishable from it, the black paint on the ceiling of the subway tunnel had been peeling away in patches from years of humidity, and long streaks of discoloration had decorated the tile walls at irregular intervals, left by seeping water and grime. Now the paint was fresh and perfect, the walls were so clean they gleamed, and the concrete floor had been sandblasted cleaner than Steve had ever imagined it could become. Somehow that was almost as disturbing as the row of metal prison cells that marched ominously down the middle of the platform. I have not seen Tony Stark for several hours. Kamani's harshly accented voice was tentative, uneasy, 
the Imperator performed the final portion of the interrogation alone. He didn't speak English. The protest was automatic, but Steve knew as soon as the words left his mouth that asking questions probably hadn't been the Imperator's main interest at that point. It was getting more and more difficult to feel any guilt over killing him. The Imperator was angry, she said flatly. This is the cell. She typed a sequence of incomprehensible symbols into the keypad on the door and opened it. Too late, Steve thought, with a cold, sharp-edged pain in his chest. He was too late. Tony lay motionless on the ground at the far end of the cell. Most of his clothing had been cut away, and there was blood all over him, so much that Steve couldn't even begin to see what injuries lay underneath it. The metallic smell of it was thick in the air. The concrete was hard under his knees as he knelt next to him. Tony was covered in so many bruises, cuts, and burns that Steve could no longer tell which marks he had put on himself. He hadn't wanted to let him go. It had no other choice. It had been their best chance for success, the surest way of getting Hank inside the station and distracting their Argonians while his poison did its work. The Argonian surrender... The shield falling, all of it would have been impossible if Hank and Tony hadn't been willing to sacrifice themselves for it. He had traded Tony for victory, for humanity's freedom. Steve knelt on the cold concrete floor next to what remained of his closest friend and tried to tell himself that it was worth it, that Tony had known this might happen and had chosen it willingly that the fate of the world was more important than either of them. He couldn't make himself believe it. The Argonian was saying something behind him. He ignored it. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered but the long gash that ran down Tony's right side, straight and thin and precise as a surgical cut the rough, cracked pallor of his lips, the way the tangled mess of his hair fell over his eyes in a sick parody of the way it had two days ago when he had been asleep in Steve's arms, the dark rings of bruises and raw flesh around his wrists. They had put him in chains while they hurt him, and Steve had sat in their headquarters and studied maps of Grand Central and waited for Hank's signal. Tony had hung here in this dark metal cell and endured torture without breaking, and Steve had gone after the Archon and the Imperator first. Steve reached out and brushed the hair back from Tony's face, tracing his gloved fingers over the bruise on Tony's cheekbone, the one he'd put there. It was cold in here. So cold it made his teeth chatter and his bones hurt. They had kept Tony in here for two days in the dark where his screams would echo off the metal walls and no one would hear them. Tony was supposed to be there next to him, the way he'd drawn them, to help him rebuild the mansion and what was left of the Avengers, to remind him that he was more than just a soldier 
to sleep next to him at night and spar with him and argue tactics with him and always support the rational, efficient option, even when it conflicted with his ideals. He had only had Tony for one night. Surely they had deserved more than that, after all they'd been through, all they'd given. The air was like ice, so cold it made his eyes sting and his lungs burn. Steve curled forward, feeling the cut in his side split open again, the same side of his rib cage as the gash they had left on Tony, probably made by the same blade, and a thin trickle of blood oozed from it, the only warm thing he could feel. He closed his eyes and rested his forehead on Tony's chest, feeling the fading warmth of Tony's body against his skin. He felt, rather than heard, the heartbeat, slow, but still there. Steve made a rough, inarticulate sound, feeling it strangle in his throat, not too late after all. The relief hurt almost as much as the loss had. All the energy seemed to drain out of him, the pain of bruised ribs and knife wounds and exhaustion coming back with a rush. Steve couldn't think what to do next, suddenly at more of a loss than he had been in since the Argonian ship had first appeared in the sky over New York. Steve turned his head, rubbing his face against Tony's skin, not caring about the warm, sticky blood and serum from the burns that he was smearing across his face, and laid his cheek against Tony's breastbone, listening to his heart. His hair brushed against the raw burns that covered the center of Tony's chest, and Tony made a very faint, pained sound. "'It's all right,' Steve said. "'It's over. I'm getting you out of here.' Steve? Tony breathed, his voice a hoarse thread. Steve opened his eyes, something in his chest twisting painfully. Tony's eyes were open a fraction, but they were unfocused, and Steve wasn't sure if Tony was really seeing him or not. We won, he heard himself saying. You and Hank did it. We won. Steve? Tony sounded confused, slurring Steve's name a little as his eyes drifted closed again. "'You're going to be okay,' Steve said, sitting up with an effort. He stroked Tony's hair, the strands very dark against the red of his gloves, and tried to make himself believe it. "'I've got you now. You're going to be okay.'" Chapter 20 Hank had never been so glad to wake up in a hospital bed. It was hard and uncomfortable, and the sheet someone had spread over him was doing next to nothing to combat the chill in the air, but it wasn't the cold stone floor of Grand Central, nor an alien prison cell. The pain in his leg had been reduced to a dull ache, to be replaced by thirst and exhaustion so heavy that opening his eyes was an effort. He wasn't in a hospital. The ceiling overhead was metal rather than acoustic tile, and the nurse giving an injection to the man in combat gear lying in the bed to his left was wearing a S.H.I.E.L.D. uniform. S.H.I.E.L.D. was here. The others had managed to get the force field down after all. Did that mean that Tony was still alive? He'd been trying to get to the others. Jan had been there, maybe. At least, he thought he remembered her. 
Had he made it to the main concourse? Where were... The world went blurry around him when he tried to sit up, and Hank fell back against the bed, closing his eyes again. All right. Sitting up was obviously not going to be his next course of action. No one around him looked familiar. Had he only imagined Jan's presence? Everything after the Argonian had stabbed him was vague and disjointed. His attempt to ask the S.H.I.E.L.D. medic if she knew where the rest of the Avengers were turned into a cough as his dry throat rebelled. Water, he managed after a moment. Dr. Pym! The medic sounded bizarrely delighted. You're awake! Don't try to sit up. You've lost a lot of blood, and we don't have enough plasma or whole blood to go around. You ought to have been given a transfusion, but we have to save our blood supplies for critical patients. She adjusted the bed slightly, so that Hank's torso was tilted upward, and handed him a small cup of water. The water was lukewarm and tasted like plastic, and was possibly the best thing that Hank had ever tasted. "'You're on the helicarrier,' she continued as he drank. "'The aliens have surrendered, but it's going to take days to get power back on, so we're bringing the wounded from the station up here.' The Argonians had... "'Surrendered?' Hank managed. "'We... "'They hadn't expected a surrender.' Not even Steve. Not really. Or else he never would have agreed to Hank's sodium ascorbate plan. He'd been sure they were going to have to fight them to the last man. Or, rather, the last prehensile-tailed furry humanoid. My team? He asked. Are they... all right? There had been gunshots coming from above him. The resistance took heavy casualties before the force shield fell and the surrender was announced, but all Avengers members who were present were alive and accounted for. Hank closed his eyes, relief making him dizzy again. Alive. They were all alive. Nobody had been killed because he hadn't been able to bring the shield down or get to the ground floor in time. Only after a moment did he realize that, alive didn't necessarily mean all right. There was a silence for a moment, and Hank could hear someone in the infirmary coughing. Then the medic spoke again, her previously brisk voice sounding slightly hesitant. You're the one who developed the antivenom for Argonian tail barbs, aren't you? Hank nodded, frowning faintly. He'd thought before that the dose he'd given himself wasn't working properly, but if that had been true, he would be dead now. He must have lost more blood than he'd realized. Of course the antivenom had worked properly. The principle had been sound, and he'd tested it thoroughly. Do you know how many lives we could have saved if we'd had access to that on the outside? There are at least three people in this room who'd be dead right now without it. I just... I wanted to thank you in person. Hank blinked at her, unsure how to respond. It wasn't particularly complex once I had access to the blood samples from poison victims and an Argonian body to autopsy, he finally said. It had been time-consuming, yes, but compared to synthesizing explosives out of cleaning products and battery acid, it had been outright fun. That, and solving the sodium ascorbate problem, had been the only real challenges he'd had in months. The revenom's a beautiful compound, very efficient. I wasn't able to counter it completely. The ergoserotonin still causes extreme pain on contact. She shook her head, smiling slightly. 
Shield scientists spent five months trying to develop an effective antivenom, she told him dryly, and you synthesized one completely unaided in a makeshift lab in a hotel basement. Well, when he put it that way, it was nothing, Hank told her modestly. His leg was starting to hurt seriously now, whatever painkiller they'd given him obviously wearing off. Maybe the severe pain on contact hadn't been the serotonin. Maybe it had just been the natural result of having a barbed stinger the size of his hand shoved into the meat of his thigh. Hank shifted uncomfortably, wondering if he ought to ask for more painkillers, or if that was something else they had a limited supply of. The resistance had had to strictly ration medication of all kinds after all the pharmacies had finally sold out last month. They wouldn't have had access to prescription medications at all if it weren't for their connections to the kingpin. He was reaching under the sheet to poke surreptitiously at the bandage on his thigh, when the infirmary door slid open, and Clint entered, helping one of the arson explosive squad men limp into the room. Clint was splattered with the purplish-brown stains of dried Argonian blood, and there was a dark patch on his sleeve where the cut in his arm had reopened and bled through the fabric and the bandage underneath, but he seemed otherwise uninjured. Good. At least one of his teammates was... Jan was standing in the doorway behind Clint. Hank struggled onto one elbow, trying to see over the Fahrenheit squad man's head. There were bloodstains all over her costume, human blood, and her left sleeve had been torn away, leaving her arm bare. One of them had hurt her. Hank shoved himself upright, planting both hands flat against the mattress to brace himself as sound and vision suddenly blurred out. I thought I told you not to sit up the medic was saying. Jan, Hank managed, his voice echoing strangely. Hank, you're awake! Jan was next to him now, one hand on his arm. Hank wasn't entirely sure how she had gotten there, but he didn't care. Your costume. There's blood all over. Are you hurt? Am I? She was glaring at him. Why was she glaring at him? He had delivered the poison and probably made their entire victory possible. Then she was hugging him, burying her face in his shoulder. Her hair smelled like ozone and smoke. Hank closed his eyes and rested his face against her hair, breathing in the smell. It didn't communicate anything in particular. Jan only gave off pheromones when they were small, a side effect of the biological modifications that had created her wings, but it was comforting anyway. "'It's your blood,' she said, her voice muffled by his skin." You promised you would come back. You could have died, Hank. You never think. You... I didn't actually promise. You just told me to come back. Hank mumbled into her hair. And you agreed you would. Jan didn't actually sound angry, but her fingers were digging into his arm. The plan worked, Hank protested. Did he get Tony out? Yeah, we... Found Tony. Clint's voice sounded strained, and Hank winced. Is he... he hasn't woken up yet. Clint cleared his throat. We, um, found Wanda and Pietro. Wanda destroyed their force field. Good, Hank said quietly. Even with his eyes closed, sitting up was starting to make him feel lightheaded. I think I should. I think he needs to lie back down. 
Clint said. He's gone gray. Hank would have protested, but since he wasn't sure if he would have been able to stay upright if he hadn't been leaning on Jan, he decided not to. Sorry. He apologized, as Jan helped him lie back. What for? Hank stared up at her, seeing the smear of blood on her face and the ragged mess of her costume. Even like this, she was beautiful. For making you worry? I should be fine. I just need to rest for a few days. By which point his body would have replaced all the blood he had lost, and he would be fine and able to get back to his lab. You're going to be on crutches almost as long as Johnny, Clint pointed out. Hank grimaced, feeling stupid. He hadn't actually thought of that. Either the blood loss or the half-worn-off painkillers were making him groggy, as if his head were filled with syrup. Maybe it will keep you out of trouble. Jan smiled at him, but her eyes were bright and shiny, and she kept blinking. Please don't cry, Hank thought. He didn't know what to do with a crying Jan, even when he was uninjured and healthy. I'm good at staying out of trouble now, he protested. I've done nothing but stay out of trouble since this started. You're the ones who've been sneaking in and out of Argonian installations and going undercover and kissing people. He was rambling, Hank realized. Maybe he should stop talking. People got twitchy when he talked too much or too quickly. It's not her fault, Clint said hurriedly. I was... He hesitated, staring at something beyond Hank and Jan. It was pretty rough there. He said quietly, awkwardly. I think it kind of screwed with my head, and... He turned to Jan. And you were there, and you were nice to me, and... He trailed off. And Hank, looking at him, made himself take in the circles under his eyes, as dark as bruises, and his pale, too thin face. Scurvy, he reminded himself. Excruciating alien venom. Months of isolation. He thought of the scientists he'd seen in the converter room, pale and gaunt and listless, and Dr. Connors telling him, some of the others can't even walk anymore. I know what it was like, he said. I saw it. Everyone was right. I wouldn't have made it if I'd gone under. Jan put a hand on his shoulder. Her fingers were warm soft. If you had, she said, who would have figured out how to poison them, or developed the anti-venom? They said... Her voice faltered for a moment. They said you would have died without it. I don't think so, Hank said, trying to remember those hazy minutes after the Argonian had stabbed him. I think I may have been bleeding enough that most of the venom wouldn't have remained in my system. She had a point, though. No one else could have discovered the Argonians' reactions to salt and vitamin C, and without his discoveries, they would have had no hope of defeating the Argonians. Still, all those months, he'd spent months hiding in the Waldorf Astoria's basement while the others risked their lives. Clint made a face. Trust me, he said. You'd be dead. And if you're ever sick, don't let Tony take care of you. He's awful at it. He paused, his eyebrows drawing together in a frown. You know, it's too bad Scott Lang was stuck in California the whole time. 
We could have sent him under, and the two of you could have had your aunts take messages out back and forth. Then Jan wouldn't have had to keep sneaking in to meet with me. That's... Jan stared at him. Brilliant, actually. Clint shrugged. I spent months with nobody to talk to but a bunch of scientific geniuses. I guess some of it rubbed off. Hank shook his head. I couldn't have done it, he repeated, trying to drag the conversation back on topic. Couldn't have done what either of you did. I don't have any right to judge you for... He couldn't even say it, which made his cowardice even more obvious. Facing down armed and extremely dangerous aliens and supervillains, he could do. But talking to Jan about their relationship was apparently beyond him. Even when they hadn't been together, he had never so much as looked at another woman. Not that he would have deserved to, considering the circumstances. But Jan and Clint had been under huge amounts of stress, and she had been Clint's only form of contact with the outside world, and they both swore that it had been a mistake, a single kiss in the heat of the moment, that I hadn't meant anything. He had no reason to think they were lying to him. Jan didn't lie, not about things like this. If she had wanted to leave him for Clint, she would have had no problem saying so. She wouldn't sneak around behind his back and string him along. Clint shifted uncomfortably, then looked away. Can we talk about something else and go back to pretending the whole kiss thing never happened? Anything that means I never have to think about it again is fine by me, Hank said, and he meant it. He was too tired to get angry or be paranoid or even really, hurt. He could have died, and Jan could have died, and instead they were both here and safe, and Jan's thumb was rubbing small circles against his shoulder, and if he stayed very still, his leg hardly hurt at all. Jan sighed, her expression speaking volumes about her assessment of both their maturity levels. Just as long as you don't let that shield medic who's been making googly eyes at you since she found out you created the Argonian antivenom get too carried away— I might not be so forgiving. She was making googly eyes at me? She had congratulated him, yes, but most of their conversation had involved the fact that Hank wasn't supposed to be sitting up yet. Clint smiled, and the expression almost reached his eyes. Women appreciate smart men and wounded heroes. Much as I hate to admit it, you fit the bill for both right now. I'll remember you said that next time you call me a mad scientist. Hank closed his eyes again and turned his face into Jan's hand, resting his cheek against her wrist. I thought I imagined you before in the station, he told her. Jan's fingers tightened on his shoulder for a moment. I thought you were dying, she said quietly. I was afraid you would bleed to death right in front of me, and never know how I really felt about you. You know what? Clint's voice sounded strained. I think I'm gonna leave now. Hmm, Hank said. All right. Jan was here. No one was dead. They had won. The Waldorf Astoria's generator probably needed more maintenance, since he'd been keeping it running by willpower alone lately. But someone else could do that. He was tired of playing mechanic. And anyway, Tony had been rescued. Clint had said they'd rescued him, right? He could do it. And Spider-Man was more than capable of handling explosive detail on his own. 
I love you, you know, even after everything. Jan's voice was barely louder than a whisper. I didn't always want to, but I never stopped. Hank smiled, feeling warm all the way through, despite knowing he didn't deserve it. I'll always love you. I'm just not very good. He yawned, the words tangling over themselves. Not good at it. He fell asleep with Jan's slim fingers wrapped around his hand. Clint wasn't in the mood to be alone, but standing there and watching Hank and Jan look at each other like that, listening to Jan talk softly to Hank about how scared she had been for him, he felt like an intruder. It was something that should have been private, intimate, not something he was meant to see. Watching the way Jan held Hank's hand, the way he stared up at her with open adoration on his face, Clint had felt weirdly left out, like he was being excluded from something, despite the fact that their relationship was something he'd never had any part of in the first place. Jan's presence was just... comforting, somehow. It had been comforting all through the months he had spent undercover, when he'd had to stay cool and stoic around Tony. Tony had been falling apart, and it had been Clint's job to be the stable one. With Jan, he didn't have to be. He didn't have to work so hard to hide how scared he'd been to keep up an act. He still had, of course, because he hadn't wanted to worry her, but if his self-control slipped a little, that had been okay. His footsteps echoed on the helicarrier's metal deck plates as he walked away, making a point of not looking back. Neither of them would have noticed if he had, anyway. It was strange. He'd never been on the helicarrier before, and in a lot of ways it felt more like a building than a flying aircraft carrier. But the metal deck plates, walls, and ceilings made it obvious, as did the near-total lack of windows. Then again, Clint had never been on an actual aircraft carrier. Maybe they all felt like this. Maybe he should ask Cap about it. Or Tony. Tony had helped build the helicarrier, and he used to sell weapons to the government, so he had to have been on one before. When Tony woke up. God, this place was depressing. A long roll of people were lying still and pale, or stiff and pain-racked, and beds along each wall half of them still in Mechanico's gray, hooked up to the IVs that were probably giving them saline, or painkillers, or maybe intravenous vitamin C, if you could do that. There were at least a dozen black-uniformed human guards in here, too, one or two of them handcuffed to their hospital beds. Some of them had switched sides and turned on the Argonians when the attacks had begun, but not all of them had. The Argonians had enlisted a lot of people out of Riker's Island when they had taken Doc Ock and the other supervillains from there. Some of Clint's fellow guards had had no life to go back to in the outside world, with laundry lists of criminal convictions hanging over their heads, and had seized on their oath to the Empire as a second chance. The closest guy, a redhead with one arm in a sling, was glaring at Clint balefully. He looked familiar. Clint was pretty sure he'd been on the day shift in the main concourse. He probably thought Clint was a traitor.
There were going to have to be some kind of trials for Argonian collaborators, weren't there? It was something else Cap would know about. Hopefully, Clint wouldn't have to testify at any of them. There was still more work to do back in the city. They were still rounding up Argonian prisoners, and probably would be for days. But Clint had spent the past two hours assisting the wounded up to the helicarrier, and acting as a translator for S.H.I.E.L.D. agents dealing with the surrendering Argodians. And that was after fighting in a pitched battle, nearly being electrocuted by chaos magic, spending most of last night not sleeping because he'd been so damn worried about Tony and Hank and the attack today, and breaking out of the facility at one police plaza just a couple days ago. He was so tired that his entire body ached. Plus, he probably still had scurvy. Three days of drinking orange juice non-stop didn't make up for months without any vitamin C at all. And the bruises that were stamped along the length of his body from the escaped hadn't yet had a chance to fade. Let the reinforcements do their job for a while. Two different shield nurses had already asked Clint if he required medical attention, in tones that implied that they had already decided the answer was yes. He didn't, but resting somewhere for a while sounded like a good idea. First, though, he ought to check up on Tony. Cap was still busy down in the city with cleanup, and Jan obviously wasn't going anywhere for a while. The medical staff had said Tony was still asleep, but who knew when he might wake up? It would suck if, after all that had happened, he had to wake up alone. The most seriously injured casualties were on the far side of the infirmary, walled off into their own private little rooms by those little white medical curtains. Petro was in one of those, probably with Wanda sitting at his bedside. Clint's presence would be an intrusion there, too. Tony looked awful. Not as bad as Petro had, hanging bloodless and pale in chains, his torso crisscrossed with cuts and burns. But not good either. He was still unconscious, an IV line running into his right arm and an oxygen tube up his nose. There was a huge, raw-looking burn in the middle of his chest, covered in some kind of clear ointment and left open and unbandaged, and a long strip of gauze taped to his side. Clint wasn't sure he wanted to know what was underneath it. His eyes went to Tony's hands as soon as he stepped around the curtain, and he felt a weird kind of relief when he saw that they were unbandaged except for rings of gauze around each wrist. He still had all his fingers. Only then did he notice the other people in the room. A red-headed woman and a big, thuggish-looking guy with a flattened nose were sitting on either side of Tony's bed in uncomfortable-looking plastic chairs. They looked vaguely familiar. Can I help you? the woman asked, looking up at him with an expression that clearly read, Go away. She had freckles across the bridge of her nose. It was cute. Once upon a time, Clint thought, that would have meant more to him. Right now, he was too tired to care. I just came to see how Tony was doing, he said. Which Avenger are you? the big guy asked, in slightly accusing tones, staring at Clint as if Clint had single-handedly murdered his puppy. 
Hawkeye, Clint told him. Who are you? He had just as much right to be here as anyone. More than a lot of people, in fact, after the past few months. His friends? Said as if Clint wasn't. I'm Pepper, the woman said. He's happy. Tony might have mentioned us. You're Pepper Potts? Clint stared at her, trying to match the worn and rumpled-looking woman in front of him, an oversized shield-issue jacket draped over her shoulders, with the terrifyingly efficient and drop-dead gorgeous secretary Tony had always described. He had always pictured a tall, supermodel type in stiletto heels. The one and only. Oh. Clint tried to think of something to say, but Tony, lying there still and pale and bandaged, seemed to suck all the life out of the room. Rhodes said you guys were in Seattle when it fell, he finally offered. I'm, ah, uh, glad you got away. Pepper's lips tightened into a thin, unhappy line. We got away because Tony gave himself up to buy us time to escape. I thought we'd never see him again. She shook her head. I... There's a reason I wasn't sure about coming back to work for him again. I am so tired of doing this. Tired just about described it. When this was over... Clint was going to sleep for a month. Tell me about it, he said. I spent... For months, I had to keep reminding him to eat. Is he like that all the time? Pepper was looking down at Tony now, her face unreadable. I thought he was dead, she said quietly. For months. Rody was sure he'd never give his armor away otherwise. I told you he wasn't, Happy said. The boss is tough, and he always has a plan. He, too, was staring down at Tony, a mournful look on his face that didn't quite match the deliberately cheerful tone of his voice. Pepper looked at him silently, eyebrows arched. Some of his plans work better than others, Happy admitted. Yeah, Clint agreed. Giving himself back up to them wasn't one of the successful ones. Pepper winced, and he immediately felt bad for saying it. He tried a smile instead. He'll be okay. He survived worse. He has to be okay. I didn't spend months watching his back and making nice for the Argonians for him to... Clint shook his head. He'll be fine. Unless being tortured had done something to him, screwed him up even worse than he had been already. And Tony hadn't had a chance to get over the vitamin C deficiency either. You could see the bruises all up and down his body, like Petro's. Only where Petro's speeded up metabolism had had some of the marks already fading to green and yellow, Tony's were all fresh, dark splotches of red and purple and black. They had really done a number on him. Clint blinked, his eyes feeling weirdly hot, and his throat suddenly thick and tight. I killed people to get you out of there, he told Tony. His voice sounded strange, 
not right. People I knew. I caught them up and shot them and smelled them burn, burning. And do you know how much that sucks? So you damn well better wake up and be fine. Pepper was looking at him funny now. People did that when you announced that you just killed people, Clint guessed. Probably he ought to get used to it. Not that he meant to go around broadcasting it, but given that he'd worked for the Argonians, people were going to assume that much and worse. If you helped get the boss out of there, then we owe you one. Happy held one massive hand out to Clint. His knuckles were scarred, and one of the fingers on his right hand was slightly bent, not straightening all the way. An ex-boxer, Clint decided. That would explain the hands and the broken nose. He stared at Happy's extended hand for a moment, not quite sure what he was supposed to do with it. I didn't do that much, he said. Mostly I just stood there and watched while the arch-captain knocked him around. And sometimes Jan brought salt packets. And he'd shot people. That was an important fact that he probably shouldn't leave out. He'd already mentioned that part, though. Hell, he was the one that took care of me when I got poisoned. So really, I didn't do all that much worth thanking me for. Happy stared at Clint for a moment, then let his hand drop. If you hadn't been there, he would have been alone. The boss tends to get in trouble when he's by himself. When he's by himself? Clint laughed, the sound bursting out of him. You mean, when he volunteers to go off by himself to let people who execute political prisoners by cutting them to pieces in public use him as a punching bag? They cut Pietro's fingers off. They tortured one of the physicists to death when they caught him withholding information from them. Not lying, just withholding information. And Tony went back in there after we got out. Tony had known it was a suicide mission. Hank, too. He'd admitted as much to Clint. Hell, he told Clint that he had his blessing with Jan if he didn't come back, which was all kinds of fucked up, and probably about the same as Tony giving up his armor unless it had just been Hank being bitchy, which Clint wasn't ruling out. Bitchy was more likely, actually. In Hank's world, his brilliant plans never had negative consequences. And Hank, he went on, aware that his voice was getting louder, but not caring, who is too damn stupid to stay hidden like he's supposed to. Pepper made a sort of shushing motion with her hands, nodding at Tony. Clint ignored her. Let everyone hear. Maybe some of the shouting would wake Tony up. Then Clint would have one less unconscious teammate to worry about. He wouldn't let me go in with him. I should have gone in with him. I shouldn't have let him talk me out of it. You hear that? He asked Tony. Tony didn't so much as twitch. I shouldn't have listened to you, because you're a suicidal idiot who thinks blowing up Grand Central Station while you're still inside is a clever plan. The last words came out in a snarl, rage flaring up from somewhere inside Clint like it had just been waiting for a chance to be released. 
Tony had been a complete mess by the time they'd escaped, all the arrogant confidence Clint usually associated with him gone. He'd been worn down, depressed, barely looking people in the eyes, the way he had been when he'd first come out to the West Coast. And he'd planned to get Clint out of the station before he destroyed it. Clint, but not himself. Because it wasn't as if a genius inventor who could build the Iron Man armor out of scrap metal could have built a bomb with a timer instead of repulsor gauntlets and gone himself out safely before the explosion, too. Pepper had stepped forward and grabbed both his wrists, her fingers digging in hard enough that it almost hurt. Clint hadn't even realized that he'd been waving his arms around. If you do not stop shouting, she said, voice low and firm. They will kick all three of us out of here. For a moment, Clint felt a wild urge to shout at her. She hadn't been there, hadn't been trapped in the city with him. She didn't know what it had been like. But the more rational part of him realized that she had a point, and that she was probably upset too. She had worked for Tony for years, after all. He swallowed hard trying to make himself calm down. God, he was tired. So tired. And there were probably still more wounded to bring up, and prisoners to deal with, and Fury was going to come grab him any minute now and make him speak Argonian again. He didn't want to know their damn language, didn't want everyone in S.H.I.E.L.D. to hear him speaking it like a good little collaborator. Going undercover had seemed like such a good idea once. They had tortured and killed his teammates, and he knew their fucking language. He knew how to salute them. He knew what their insignia meant, the proper way to conduct a duel of honor, and how to fight with their weapons, and he had actually liked Isimud. When Subcaptain Kamani had asked to have him transfer to her command, he had actually been proud. Proud to be transferred to a counterinsurgency unit that had ambushed and killed three different resistance teams in the Bronx. And he'd been worried about Tony going native. I can speak their language, he told Pepper, his throat hurting with the effort to keep his voice quiet. And Justice was only on the team because I gave him my spot. He shouldn't have even been there, and now he's dead. And I feel guilty for killing them. Pepper and Happy exchanged a long look, and then Happy put one massive hand on Clint's shoulder. The boss is going to be okay, he said. He's gone through worse than this before. Yeah, Clint admitted shakily, the anger draining away and taking most of the rest of his energy with it. I know. I was there for the heart surgery. No one is going to blame you for anything, Hawkeye, Pepper said. She stared up at Clint solemnly. You went undercover with Tony, didn't you? And spent months collecting information without getting caught. You were in a difficult position, and you did the best you could. You're a hero. It doesn't feel like it, Clint admitted. I just did what I had to do to survive. He'd done heroic things before up to and including helping save the world a couple times. He hadn't felt exactly heroic after most of those, either. 
generally just triumphant and relieved not to be dead. But this time was different. He probably ought to at least feel satisfaction that they'd won, but it didn't feel real yet. He knew the Argonians were defeated, that they would be leaving, that it was over. But he kept having to remind himself that he didn't have to salute the people they were taking prisoner anymore. Kept catching himself worrying about how he was going to make his next meeting with Jan when Grand Central was such a mess. Sure that the chaos would finally get her, and him, caught. He couldn't even get used to eating real food again. It wasn't over, he thought. Not really. It wouldn't be over until Tony and Pedro woke up. Pepper wrinkled her nose. I don't think it ever does. Most heroes are just people doing what they have to do. He barely even knew these people. Why did it make him feel all warm and fuzzy inside to hear her say that? Baby monkeys, he reminded himself. You're so desperate for human contact that you were going around kissing Jan. Any sympathy was going to make him feel better, even sympathy from strangers. Strangers he'd just had some kind of near breakdown in front of. Clint felt himself flush. I'm, uh, sorry for barging in here and yelling at you. That's okay. Pepper smiled at him, and the expression almost looked real if you ignored the worry in her eyes and the way she kept glancing back at Tony. I think you needed to yell at someone. Yeah. Clint let out a long, shaky breath. He felt better, he realized. Not a lot better, but at least the awful, humiliating desire to scream or cry was gone. He must have needed to get things off his chest. He had originally been planning to go rest somewhere, he remembered. Clint glanced around the little, fabric-walled room, looking for somewhere to sit. Is there an extra chair in here? I think I'm just going to sit down for a while. Happy waved a hand toward the seat he'd been using, the one on Tony's left. You can have mine. Thanks, Clint made himself say. The chair was more comfortable than it looked, despite the way the hard plastic pressed against the bruises in his back and ribs. He was just going to sit there for a while, Clint decided. It beat being alone. There was absolutely no reason for them to keep me here any longer. They don't understand mutant physiology anyway. I'd be better off at the hotel. IVs work just as well on energy mutants as they do on anyone else, Wanda said. Normally, she had to struggle to contain her annoyance with Pietro when he was in this kind of temper, but the sound of him talking, the side of his face animated and pinched with annoyance instead of lifeless and still, was too miraculous and wonderful for her to be irritated. Pietro was still pale, and the swaths of bandages across his chest were spotted here and there with blood, but after a unit of the helicarrier's precious and carefully rationed whole blood and an IV full of saline and glucose... His lips had lost that white, colorless look, and he had finally woken up. The medical staff had been openly amazed, one doctor telling Wanda repeatedly that he had never seen someone with hypovolemic shock and severe dehydration and hypoglycemia stabilize so quickly. Doctors rarely knew quite what to make of Petro. 
and she'd had to tell them three times that 120 beats per minute was his normal resting heart rate and wasn't being caused by some underlying medical condition. Petro pushed himself up on one elbow, grimacing in pain as he did so. There's no privacy here, and I shouldn't have to be stuck here with all these, he sneered, people. By which, of course, he meant baseline humans who have no mutant abilities or superpowers. It's not as if they can make my finger grow back, he went on, nodding at his left hand, which was completely hidden from view by white gauze. I just need some place to rest, and I can't do that here. You wouldn't have any more privacy at the hotel, she pointed out, resisting the impulse to brush his hair, still clumped into stiff brownish spikes by dried blood, back out of his face. We were sleeping four people to a room there. It wasn't actually the presence of other people, non-mutant or not, that was bothering him. She knew. Petro got impatient and bored very quickly when he had to stay still, and the fact that he was in pain only made it worse. His accelerated metabolism meant that painkillers were significantly less effective on him than they were on normal people. And since S.H.I.E.L.D. was forced to tightly ration their limited supply, they hadn't given him the triple dose he actually needed, insisting that a standard dose for a human of his body weight was sufficient. Normal doctors and hospitals always assumed that proper doses of medication were a continual issue for mutants and other superhumans. Steve had the same problem, with his built-in resistance to narcotics and sedatives, and so did a lot of energy mutants, as well as anyone with a healing factor. The Avengers Mansion had always stocked extra supplies of basic medications, anticipating the necessity of treating people with unusual physiology. Everyone knew that Petro, Steve, and Carol needed individually tailored pain relief, the same way they all knew that Tony wasn't supposed to take Tylenol or anything else with acetaminophen in it because his liver couldn't handle it, or that Jan was allergic to penicillin, or that Hank couldn't be given any kind of medication while giant because the extra-large dosage necessary at that size would stay in his bloodstream when he shrank back to normal and become toxic. I don't care, Petro was insisting stubbornly. He shoved himself upright and sat there swaying slightly, reaching for the IV line in his left elbow. Wanda grabbed his wrist. Don't, she said more sharply than she'd intended to. You nearly died. Do you understand that? I thought you were dead. The image of Petro's bloody, broken body hanging from the cell wall in chains flashed into her mind, and she told herself firmly that he was all right now, that he hadn't actually been dead, that poor lighting and fear and hysteria had caused her to misjudge the situation. He hadn't actually been dead. You need to stay in bed, Petro. If you try and get up, you'll hurt yourself. Petro collapsed back against the mattress, his face pale and tight with pain. Fine, he sighed in a long-suffering tone that indicated that this was a great sacrifice and he was only making it for her. I thought you were dead when I saw you hanging there, she said again. He hadn't been, though. He couldn't have been. Her magic wasn't that powerful. Couldn't be that powerful, even out of control the way she had been. They brought me your finger in a box. Petro's eyes snapped open again, his face twisting in disgusted horror. That's barbaric. They thought it would make me talk, she said, and found herself suddenly unable to look at him. I should have. They were going to do worse to you if I remained silent, yet I still didn't. Of course you shouldn't have talked, he interrupted. You knew what they were capable of. What if they had tortured you too, or killed you? He was silent for a long moment, eyes closed again. And then, in a much quieter voice, he said, 
They wouldn't tell me where you were or what they were doing to you. I thought they were. I'm glad you're all right. Wanda longed to hug him, to reassure herself that he was there, alive, all right, that he hadn't been taken from her. Not like Vision, not like the twins. But his torso was a mass of bruises and cuts, and it would only have hurt him. She took his undamaged hand in both of hers instead. With her gloves gone, burned away by the magic, she could feel how cool and clammy his skin was, proof that he still hadn't completely recovered from his ordeal. I'm fine, she said, as if she hadn't gone crazy and nearly killed herself and Carol and Clint and Petro himself. They never touched me. I think they were afraid to. They'd have been right to be. The chaos magic had destroyed their force shield, but if Carol hadn't been able to talk her down, it would have destroyed much, much more than that. She had wanted it to. She had wanted to let them all burn for taking her twin from her. It was frightening how easy it had been to let the magic take over, how close she had come to not coming back. Clint hadn't come near her since then, probably afraid she might lose control once more. And while Petro had never been intimidated by her powers before, if he knew what she had come so close to doing, what she might have done. Carol had saved her, just as she'd saved her from the cell. She had reminded her that there were still people left whom she loved, still reasons to force the chaos power back under control, no matter how much it cost her to do so. Wanda had wanted to be able to rescue Carol, to save her from her own self-destructive behavior, to prove to her that she was beautiful, valuable, strong, no matter what Marcus had done to her, no matter what happened to her powers. Instead, Carol had rescued her, stepping into the maelstrom of chaos magic as if it wasn't even there, and bringing her back to herself. I would have killed them, Petro said, if they had. Wanda believed him, even battered and shaky looking in a hospital bed. He said the words with total conviction. There was more of Magneto in both of them than was good for anyone. Do you want me to bring Luna here? She asked, looking away. The little girl was probably frantic with missing her father, after the past three weeks, and after what the Argonians had done to him. Having his daughter here could only be good for Pietro. Where is she anyway? She is... all right, isn't she? She's on the moon, he said, his voice monotone, with crystal. The Inhumans wouldn't help us, even after Madripoor, but at least they came and took her. I never liked her, you know, Wanda told him. Crystal, I mean. What did you ever see in her, besides her perfect DNA? Petro raised one eyebrow in a superior fashion, or tried to, anyway. His right eye was bruised and swollen nearly shut, and his eyebrow split down the middle from the impact, refused to move. It's not as if your taste is any better. Wanda smiled sweetly at him. Because you're my brother and you're injured, I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. Vision had left her because he'd been damaged nearly beyond repair after being disassembled and reconstructed. Crystal had left Petro after having an affair with one of Wanda and Vision's neighbors, apparently because Petro wasn't paying enough attention to her. She hadn't even had the grace to pick someone she actually knew and liked for her extramarital affair. Then she had acted as if Petro's spectacularly immature temper tantrum upon finding out about it was a shocking surprise to her, rather than something she had deliberately instigated. I'm not that badly injured, Petro tried again. Being Petro, he probably wasn't even conscious of how blatant a lie it was. He clearly wanted to believe it. I don't need to surround uselessly, especially now that you've brought the shield down and all the actual danger is over. Yes, Wanda said. You do. 
I'll talk to them about the pain medication, okay? He shook his head minutely. No, they barely have enough to go around as it is. A competent medical staff would have stocked more, but since they're apparently incompetent. Wanda squeezed his hand, letting him complain without really listening, and Petra squeezed back. At least, whatever Carol and Clint thought of her, whatever her powers had done, whatever was going to happen to them all now that the war was over, she still had her brother. Shouldn't they be in some kind of... restraints? Agent Quartermain cast an uneasy glance toward the group of gray-uniformed Argonians clustered around the water filtration system. Undoing whatever it was Hank had done to it was obviously more complicated than Steve had assumed, because they had been working on it for hours. I mean, it's not really possible to disarm them. They've given their parole, Steve told him. And anyway, those are all mechanicos. They don't have any combat training. They're still six and a half feet tall with poisonous scorpion tails. And that, Nick Fury said without turning away from his conversation with Reed Richards and the Argonian Archon, is why you're guarding them. Steve felt a moment's rush of gratitude that Nick was there to take charge and deal with those kinds of questions. After months of informal command, giving orders and arguing with everyone's attempts to second-guess them ought to have been automatic, but he didn't have the patience for it anymore. He hadn't seen Tony since he had watched S.H.I.E.L.D. medics load him onto a stretcher and take him away, pale and broken and unconscious. He had contacted the infirmary on the helicarrier three times, and each time the doctor on duty had told him that Tony still hadn't woken up. The last time, she had snapped impatiently at him and told him to stop calling. See, Archon, Nick said, gesturing at the bulk of tanks and tubing that made up the filtration system. We're getting you water that isn't poisoned. Now you and your technicians and Dr. Richards here are going to see about getting that giant nuclear whatever the hell downstairs out of the basement and back into your spaceship. It's really quite fascinating. Reed was saying, beaming at the Archon and the Mechanicos, who was serving as a translator. Building a replica is going to take at least a week, though, even with your technician's assistance. A week. The Mechanicos stared at Reed, its ears stiff with shock. Reed cocked his head thoughtfully, his neck extending a visible inch or so longer than any normal humans could have. Well, that's assuming Tony will be able to help me. Otherwise, it'll probably be closer to two weeks. Uh, replica? Steve still wasn't good at reading Argonian facial expressions, and didn't especially want to be, but he was pretty sure that, had it been human, the Mechanicos would have been on the verge of tears. Tony, he knew, was not going to be helping Reed. Tony was lucky to be alive, and Steve ought to have been up on the helicarrier with him, not down here helping Nick sort out the Argonians' surrender. Except that the Argonians, according to them, had not surrendered to the United States government, or to the UN, or to S.H.I.E.L.D. They had surrendered to Steve. Personally. It had been hours since the S.H.I.E.L.D. had fallen— long enough that the sky outside had gone from bright, daylight blue to black, millions of stars glinting with a clarity Steve had never seen in New York, not even as a child. 
With the force shields dimming and blurring effect gone, and the electricity still out, the Milky Way was a long path of light across the sky, cold and bright between the black silhouettes of buildings. And Steve was still stuck in Grand Central, left with the responsibility of overseeing the details of the Argonian surrender, because delegating it would apparently have been some kind of insult. Not that he particularly cared about that. And because the resistance was reluctant to take orders from outside authority, something that was a legitimate concern. Steve had, somehow, without realizing it or intending to, ended up with his own personal army, and while the army and navy personnel who had been working more or less on their own in Brooklyn had greeted reinforcements eagerly, the National Guard troops who had been absorbed into the Avengers-led resistance, along with the city emergency personnel and law enforcement, had decided, without ever consulting Steve, that they answered to him now, and not to any other higher authority— be that the U.S. government, the shattered remnants of the New York state government, or the former mayor who had been released from Argonian captivity that afternoon. No one seemed to be sure who was in charge, except for Nick, who generally operated under the bone-deep belief that he was, and had since he'd been a sergeant. Becoming a command-grade officer with actual political power had only strengthened this conviction, not created it. We need to get the power back on, Sam was saying next to him. Once they got the power core out of here, the entire station's going to be black as pitch underground. Plus, it will let the hospitals start running at full capacity again. That is, if there are any ambulance crews left in the city who haven't turned into freedom fighters. Have S.H.I.E.L.D. and a team of engineers to the Con Ed plant, Steve told Dugan, electing not to bother Nick while he was still trying to deal with the Archon. He had told her that Nick had his full confidence and authority to act on his behalf. He couldn't start undercutting him in front of her now. See if there's anything they can salvage. Already done it, Dugan said. Nick gave the order an hour ago. He gave Steve a long, measuring look that was somewhere between sympathetic and amused, and said, They want you in the lobby. They're trying to identify bodies. Steve couldn't control his flinch. The Argonians had already taken care of their own, with smooth efficiency and remarkable speed. There had been several large carrion eaters native to the underground caves on Argon, Arch-Captain Kamani had informed him, which left only the dead resistance members and the bodies of the human guards, left for their own species to deal with by unspoken consent. Men whose deaths he had ordered. He had killed some of them himself, taking the lobby from the Argonians. It had been necessary, he reminded himself. If Tony were here, he would have agreed. Letting Tony sacrifice himself had been necessary, too. Steve was so goddamn tired of doing what was necessary. Thanks, he told Dugan. I'll just go and... and... Sam put one hand on his arm. You don't have to, you know. For God's sake, Steve, there are other people here who can. It's my job, Steve interrupted, voice sharper than he had meant it to be. He owed it to them. If he had known that he could have simply challenged the Imperator to single combat... Okay, Sam said. I get that. His hand stayed on Steve's arm, and a Red Wing, perched on his shoulder, peered at Steve with fierce golden eyes and made a sort of concerned cooing sound. 
We'll come with you. Steve nodded, unable to think of an objection and inwardly grateful for the support. The blood-spattered chaos of the lobby had only been partially diminished over the last few hours. The burned rubble that was all that remained of the staircase up to the old Meridian restaurant had yet to be cleaned away, though someone had at least swept the broken glass from the windows over against one wall, so that it no longer crunched underfoot. The gold light fixtures hanging from the ceiling in the side halls had exploded when Wanda had brought the shield down, and the battery-powered floodlights shield had set up to replace them cast bright white circles of light, turning the arched ceiling overhead into a nest of shadows. The human casualties had been laid out under one of the floodlights, Resistance and Argonian collaborators together. War Machine was there, still in full armor, and Steve stopped dead for a moment when he saw him. He knew it was James Rhodes under the helmet, but every time he saw a flash of red and gold out of the corner of his eye, or heard the heavy clanking of metal boots against the stone floor, he couldn't stop the wild leap of joy and relief in his heart, even though he knew it wasn't Tony. This one wasn't Riker's. A nondescript-looking man was saying, looking up from the black-uniformed body he was kneeling next to. There was a long gash across the dead man's torso, his uniform tunic stiff with blood, and a second slash across his throat, which gaped open obscenely. He'd been killed by an Argonian's blades, which meant he was one of the handful of guards who had switched sides when the fighting had begun. The man was doing fifteen years. The man went on, in a vaguely familiar voice. He'd been part of the breakout from one police plaza, Steve remembered suddenly, one of the scientists, the one who'd been working for Wilson Fisk. Drugs, I think, and maybe armed robbery. The non-costume guys didn't talk to us much, unless they worked for the kingpin. I didn't know his name. Check the prison records if there are any left. Fisk's spy planted one hand flat against the ground and shoved himself up to his feet, wincing as if the movement hurt him. "'My sentence better be getting commuted for this stark,' he snapped at Rhodes. There was a long moment of silence as Rhodes, Steve, and Sam all stared at him, and a cold knot formed in Steve's stomach at the knowledge that someone who worked for the kingpin knew that Tony was Iron Man.' "'I'm not,' Rhodes began. "'Do you think I'm stupid?' Fisk's man cut in. "'I saw you use those repulsor gauntlets during the escape. "'If they have half the kick of vibrational gauntlets, "'there's no way you could have been that accurate with them "'the first time you wore them.' "'Rhodes pulled his helmet off. "'I'm not Tony Stark,' he said again. "'Do you recognize any of the others, Dr. Schultz?' "'I'm not a doctor,' Schultz said, staring at him. "'I didn't even finish college.' He shook his head. Damn. Maybe that was the first time he used the gauntlets. He sounded grudgingly impressed. Steve turned away, relieved, and tried to put the problem of Tony's secret identity, and Tony, his body motionless in Steve's arms, nowhere near as heavy as it should have been, out of his mind. When his eye fell to the nearest body, a woman whose blackened clothing had been fused to her skin by plasma burns, it was suddenly easy. Officer Chen had been a member of the NYPD for ten years. 
She had survived being sent into ground zero after 9-11, had been stabbed in the shoulder by an angry woman with a kitchen knife while trying to break up a domestic dispute. She had shown Steve the scar, claiming not to be afraid of the Argonians' swords. The black uniformed guard next to her was a stranger, but beyond him was an ex-firefighter whom Steve had seen go down in the initial assault, his open eyes staring blindly up at the ceiling. He wasn't sure how much later it was when he finally looked up from the last body. Carol had joined him at some point, filling in names for some of the people he hadn't known, or had only known by nicknames. Sir? There was a young man hovering a few feet away, in a flak jacket and dark clothing that was the de facto combat uniform of the Resistance. Yes, Steve snapped, his mind still on the vacant eyes and exposed guts of the last corpse, and the smell of blood and death that permeated the air. There's a General Ross here from Washington, the kid said, darting uneasy glances at the bodies as he spoke. He looked barely old enough to drink, his dark hair hanging in his eyes the way Vance's had. He wants to speak to our highest-ranking military commander. We told him that was either Master Sergeant Colin or Lieutenant Goodwin, but both of them are taking orders from Colonel Fury now, and he sent me to get you. Tell Fury he can deal with the Pentagon himself, Steve said shortly, turning away so he wouldn't have to see the haunted look in the kid's eyes as he stared at the dead, the expression a silent accusation. I have better things to do than to talk to politicians. He shouldn't even be here, squandering his time on the dead, not when there was an entire military regime to dismantle and his men didn't even know who to take orders from anymore. The living needed his attention more. He hadn't even been up to the helicarrier to check on the wounded. He hadn't seen Clint or Wanda or Pietro or Hank. The kid flinched, his eyes widening, and a hand settled heavily on Steve's shoulder. Steve spun around, knocking the hand away and reaching for his shield, to find himself staring at Sam. Sam held his hands up before him non-threateningly, and met Steve's glare evenly. Calm down. It's not his fault. I know that, Steve started. You jumped about a foot when I touched you, and you're bleeding again. Sam nodded at Steve's side, and Steve looked down to see a fresh spot of red on the pressure bandage he'd had Duke and wrap around his ribs. The slashed open leathern mail over his right side gaped widely where it had been cut, leaving the no longer white bandaging clearly visible. He hadn't even noticed, but now that he was looking at it, the pain hit him, dull and stinging. He pressed a hand to his side, trying to ease the ache in his bruised ribs. It'll be fine. I can have it looked at later. You can have it looked at now. Carol had appeared from somewhere, her face smudged with soot and her combat gear scorched and blackened with burns. You can barely stand up straight. I don't have time. Is Tony's special brand of stupid contagious? Rhodes' voice was distorted by his helmet, but Steve could still hear the exasperation in it. You're in charge. Delegate or something. Sam had taken hold of Steve's arm, pulling him away from the rows of bodies with a strange kind of gentleness. Let somebody else deal with this stuff. You've done enough. Christ, you've done more than enough. 
go get some rest and have somebody take a look at that sword cut. But Steve gestured at the kid, still standing there uncertainly in his battered combat gear. I need to... People keep asking me. You're making everyone nervous, Steve, Carol said flatly. You held it together the entire time we were living in abandoned skyscrapers and eating food out of cans and dodging alien energy weapons, and now we've won and you're acting like a twitchy, bad-tempered, nervous wreck. I... And before you throw it in my face, yes, I know, I've spent months doing the same thing, so you might want to consider that I know what I'm talking about. Steve shook his head, suddenly completely at a loss for what to say. The arguments he tried to muster for why he was needed here, how much there was to do, wouldn't come, the words fleeing away from him. All he wanted was to see Tony, and maybe, after that, wash the blood, both alien and human, off himself and get some sleep. We've got this, Sam said, still in that strange, gentle voice, his fingers firm on Steve's arm. Take a break for a while. Steve shook his head torn between what he wanted and what he knew his responsibilities demanded, and Carol shoved at his shoulder with one hand. Go hover over Tony and stop hovering over everyone else before I strangle you. She groaned, shaking her head. God, I wish I had the time or space to sit down somewhere and have a drink. I'm tired, and just looking at you makes me more tired. You're sure you guys have things under control, Steve started. Go get some rest, Sam repeated. Steve nodded, feeling a wave of guilty relief, and went. The lights in the helicarrier's infirmary were dim, in deference to the late hour. Most of the patients were asleep, and a nurse in a shield uniform was moving among them, reading medical charts and waking one or two men up to give them doses of medication. When he saw Steve, standing uncertainly in the doorway, he came to a stop in the middle of the aisle, staring for a second. "'I'm looking for Tony Stark,' Steve said quietly. Speaking loudly would wake someone up, break the silence that hung heavy in the air. Something cold inside him eased when the nurse nodded toward the curtained-off beds at the back of the long room. "'He's back there.' Steve started for the row of white curtains, all of his attention focused on Tony, on how pale he'd been, his lips bloodless and the bruise on his face black and sickeningly vivid, on the look in his eyes when he'd said Steve's name, haunted and confused, as if he hadn't been sure that Steve was really there. He stopped abruptly as the nurse laid a hand on his arm. Steve swung around, his heart lurching in his chest. It took effort not to hit the man, to control the automatic instinct to strike out at whatever had grabbed him. Let me go, he said, still quietly. The nurse's eyes widened a fraction, not quite a flinch, but he stood his ground. Let me see your side first. It's bleeding through the bandaging. Steve wanted to refuse, to yank his arm free of the man's grip and press onward, to explain that he could see Tony first and get his own injuries looked at later. They weren't serious, and leaving them untreated for a few more minutes wasn't going to cause any harm. But Tony's battered, broken body and haunted eyes flashed into his mind again, and he nodded instead, surrendering. 
Tony would be upset if Steve came to him still covered in blood, with the cut on his side raw and unstitched and bleeding. After what he'd been through, he didn't need to worry about Steve's injuries on top of his own. The nurse looked relieved and led Steve to an empty bed, telling him to sit down and wait there while he got a suture kit and some scrubs for him to wear. Steve hadn't asked for them. His costume must look worse than he thought. Sitting down only seemed to increase the exhaustion he felt. Sitting up straight pulled at his side, and there was no one there to see him sag forward and wrap an arm around his ribs. So he did, waiting for the nurse to reappear and trying to think of what he was going to say to Tony. Hank was lying in the bed across the aisle, washed out and haggard, with Jan curled up on the pillow beside his head, small and half-hidden by Hank's hair, so that Steve had almost missed seeing her at first. He looked all right, except for the bandage on his leg and the ivy line in one arm, better than he had when Steve had seen him lying on the floor in the station lobby, waiting to be taken up to the helicarrier. At least Hank was going to be okay. For a while, earlier today, Steve had thought that they were going to lose more than one Avenger. That Wanda and Pietro were both alive was a minor miracle, and Hank and Tony both could so easily have died, had nearly died, on the suicide mission Steve had sent them on. He would have never forgiven himself if they had, if Hank had been killed trying to meet up with the rest of them, or Tony's heart had finally given out from shock, and God knew how much sustained abuse just hours or minutes before Steve had found him. They were alive, he reminded himself, as he watched the nurse come back, his hands laden down with fabric and medical supplies. He shouldn't dwell on what could have happened. They were alive, and Tony was going to be all right, and the Argonians were leaving. Everything was going to be all right. Steve repeated the thought to himself while the nurse cleaned the slice across his ribs with antiseptic and stitched it up, ignoring the way the man pressed his lips together and sighed when Steve refused pain medication. Either it wouldn't be a large enough dose to make a difference, or it would be enough, and, tired as he was, it would knock him out. Shield medical personnel were efficient. Steve wasn't sure how long he spent sitting there on the cot, staring at Hank and Jan while the nurse set a long line of stitches in his side and taped a bandage over them, but it couldn't have been very long. Or maybe he had spaced out for a few minutes, because first it seemed as if the nurse had barely started, and then he was pressing the last piece of tape into place. Thanks, Steve said, pulling the green shield-issue shirt on and standing before the nurse could suggest that he lay down and rest. Now would you please tell me where Tony is? Back there. The nurse pointed at the row of curtained-off beds. The third one on the right. Steve didn't bother to say thank you, simply picked up his shield from where he'd set it down beside the bed, pushed past the man, and headed for the white curtain that concealed Tony's bed, not looking back. His stomach lurched as he pulled the curtain aside and ducked around it, half afraid of what he might see. Tony had been so pale, so covered in bruises and cuts and burns. What if he'd been more severely injured than Steve had thought, the blood and grime hiding some other, much worse form of damage? 
Tony was lying on his back in a hospital bed, a white sheet pulled up to his waist and his bare torso covered in clean white bandages. The oxygen tube, saline drip, and heart monitor hooked up to him were a familiar sight, if not in any way a reassuring one. Clint was curled up in a plastic chair next to the bed, asleep with one hand wrapped around the hilt of his Argonian short sword. It shouldn't have been cute, but Steve found himself smiling anyway. Just being near Tony, looking at him, made him feel better. The slow, steady beeping of the heart monitor, a constant, quiet proof that Tony was still alive, still present. Steve laid his shield against the empty chair on Tony's other side and sat down heavily on the edge of the bed. With his gloves gone, Tony's hair was soft against his fingers, despite the grime and sweat that had turned it lank and stringy. Tony stirred slightly when Steve's fingers brushed his cheek, but his eyes didn't open. He didn't look like he was in too much pain, despite the exhaustion carved into his too thin face. The circles under his eyes were bigger, darker than they had been before, and his lips were cracked and dry, but his face was relaxed still. They had him on painkillers, probably because he hadn't woken up yet and started refusing them. Steve thought of Jan, asleep with one hand wrapped in Hank's hair, and wished that he could do the same, climb in next to Tony and wrap his arms around him, carefully, and hold him, but there was no way the narrow hospital bed was going to hold two men who were both over six feet tall. Steve would barely fit into it on his own. Tony probably wouldn't be waking up any time soon, Steve thought, struggling not to feel disappointment as he ran his fingers through Tony's hair. It was probably for the best. He needed to rest. Then Tony's eyelids twitched, and he turned his face into Steve's hand. Steve, he mumbled, his eyes opening partway to reveal a thin slit of blue. Got me out. Did it work? Yes, Steve told him, blinking at the sudden prickly heat in his eyes. We won. They're leaving. Oh. Tony sighed and rolled his head to the side, pressing his cheek into Steve's palm, and his eyes fell shut again. Good. There was a long pause while Steve tried to think of something to say. I love you, he thought, swallowing hard as his throat closed up. I never would have forgiven myself if you'd... Tony frowned slightly, his eyebrows drawing together. Why is Clint here? he asked, voice heavy and faintly slurred. Is he okay? He's fine, Steve said, feeling a sudden half-hysterical urge to laugh. I don't know why he's here. He looks too cute to wake him up, though. Tony's lips twitched for a moment into something that was almost a smile. You wouldn't say that if he were in the bed instead of me. He's a terrible patient. I tried to get you out in time, Steve blurted out. I know they... I wish you hadn't had to go through this. You did. Tony opened his eyes again, smiling hazily up at Steve. We won. And I'm not dead. He frowned again, something like fear coming into his eyes, and added, I didn't tell him anything. Only what I was, was supposed to. About the virus. 
He reached up clumsily and wrapped his fingers around Steve's wrist, staring intently at him. Didn't tell him about Hank. Steve brushed a piece of Tony's hair out of his face again, blinking hard. I know, he forced out, making himself smile. I know you didn't. Good, Tony said again, and his fingers relaxed on Steve's wrist, grasping it gently now instead of the almost painful grip of a moment before. I'm glad they didn't kill me, he said, with an open honesty Steve was sure he'd never be displaying if he weren't drugged. I wanted to see you again. I kept thinking about you in there, whenever they... He trailed off and then repeated... Wanted to see you. I didn't want to die without telling you. He broke off, yawning. Without telling you. His eyes slid shut, and the fingers around Steve's wrist went lax. Steve lifted Tony's hand to his face for a moment, closing his eyes and holding it against his cheek, then lowered it gently back to the bed. I love you too, he whispered. Then he stood and shook a reluctant and sleepy Clint awake, making him leave to find a bed of his own. Once Clint had gone, Steve pulled the still warm chair he'd been sleeping in around to the other side of the bed and settled into it, propping his feet up on the second chair and leaning his head back, making himself as comfortable as possible. He fell asleep holding Tony's hand. Chapter 21 Debate continues among world leaders over whether or not to accept the peace terms offered by the defeated Argonians. The massacre of several thousand mutants in the former nation of Madripoor remains a sore point in the talk, despite official Argonian apology. And Russia continues to push for reparations for the destruction of Moscow and St. Petersburg, despite efforts by Wakandan Crown Prince T'Challa to seek a swift and unanimous adoption of the Grand Central Treaty. In Latveria, the bitter fighting between government forces and Argonian loyalists has finally begun to die down. Victor von Doom spoke briefly with Bugle reporters during his appearance at the treaty negotiations, but refused to answer questions about the rumors of human rights violations carried out by Latverian troops. My people are angry, he said, dodging the topic of former Argonian collaborators executed without trial. America has ignored our suffering at the hands of the aliens because they lack the will to face further confrontation. They seek a swift end to the fighting. Latveria seeks only justice. When asked about announcements made by the Argonians early during the war that Doom had surrendered to them willingly in exchange for a position of power within the Argonian occupation, Doom declined to answer and declared the interview at an end. This concludes our national news segment for the night. For more on these stories and others, you can read the Sunday edition of the Daily Bugle, appearing in print for the first time in five months. It's been a long and difficult road back to normal operations for us, and Jonah would like to thank Robbie Robertson, Peter Parker, and Johnny Storm for their tireless work in keeping the Daily Bugle's free New York radio on the air. He hasn't said anything, guys, but deep down, he's proud of you. It's the standard expected and demanded of my reporters, Eric. I won't compliment people for doing their damn jobs. We're on the air, Jonah. I can curse if I want to. It's my paper and my radio station. From New York City, this is Ben Urich, signing off. Thank you for listening, and good night. In the past Ock night, 
Isamud had found over two dozen different structural flaws in the newly repaired portions of the Empire's remaining starships, as well as ten fighter craft engines which had been pushed to the limit of their tolerances and which would have exploded when they overheated. Every piece of work that Tony Stark had ever done for them had had to be reevaluated, and the nagging fear that there was something Tony had worked on or advised him that he'd forgotten or overlooked or simply not known enough about to notice the sabotage kept him up at night. He didn't want to, but he found himself almost admiring the subtlety of some of the damage and misdirection. The engines in particular were almost a work of art. They had lost three aircraft in the past six Auk nights, and everyone had assumed that the explosions were simply bad luck. Isamud wouldn't even have noticed the sabotage in the remaining engines if he hadn't already known it was there. Tony had been very, very good. Acknowledging that didn't make him feel any better. Isamud had trusted him, had liked him had mourned for him when he thought him dead in the destruction of the secondary research site. He had helped torture one of the rebel prisoners because he had wanted to avenge Tony. That was how thoroughly taken in he'd been. The fact that Arch-Captain Kamani had been fooled as well was little comfort. And the fact that Reed Richards, the human scientist who had eluded capture behind a force field so unlike anything created by Argonian technology, that they hadn't been able to breach it in half a year, had already half completed a duplicate of one of their power cores, only added insult to injury. Isamud had spent countless Auk nights struggling to reverse-engineer the power core in order to build a new one, each breakthrough bringing him only a fraction closer to their goal. If human scientists could accomplish it in a mere handful of days, how much faster could he have worked if Tony had been honest with him? had actually been working for the good of Argon, had told Isamud everything he knew. Isamud wiped a spray of violet-tinted hydraulic fluid off his cheek and contemplated ripping the entire section of tubing he was inspecting out and replacing it. The hydraulics failure waiting to happen in the transport's landing gear was especially humiliating. He had thought something was off about the system since supervising the repairs to it several nights ago but he had allowed himself to be blinded by trust placed in the assumed friendship of a non-Argonian. He ignored the footsteps behind him at first, confident that they were one of the other Mechanicos who had been coming to him for advice over the last several days. What was he supposed to tell them? That he was sorry, but half of what he knew might very well be lies? Mechanico Sisamud? Isamud jumped, knocking his head against the underside of the transport's hull, and spun around. Arch-Captain, I mean, Imperator Kamani. He straightened up as far as the cramped space would let him and saluted, acutely conscious of the dark stains from hydraulic fluid and grease that covered his tunic and the grime clumping his fur together. You are hard at work, I see. Yes, arch Imperator, Isimud stammered. There is much to be done before we may depart. I have not spoken to you often, she said, almost hesitantly, since the surrender. No, Imperator. 
Why would she bother when she was so important and he was just another Mechanicos? You have been busy. Your work is vital to our departure and for our journey to our planet. I did not want to distract you from it. She hesitated, her ears twitching slightly for a moment. One of them was still bandaged, marring the graceful lines of her face, but at least the limp she had had after the duel with Mamatu was gone. The human imperator, Steve Rogers, she gave me a gift for you. I think Steve Rogers is, uh, male, actually, Isamud said carefully. He would not normally correct a high-ranking warrior, but he had gotten into the habit of correcting Kamani's mistakes when she studied English. And he knew she would have to negotiate further with Rogers. It wouldn't do to call him by the wrong pronouns. Oh. Kamani cocked her head to one side, the end of her tail curving questioningly. How can you tell? Their females have swollen glands on their torso that secrete a fluid they use to nourish their young. One of the other mechanicos who specialized in medicine had made this discovery some time ago to the general astonishment of his co-workers. Kamani was too dignified to make a face, but Isamud could read the disgust in her ears and tail. I know, he said. They apparently lack teeth as infants as well. How interesting, Kamani said, and though from any other warrior it would have been empty politeness, Isamud knew she truly meant it. He gave me a gift to pass on to you, from his mate. She held out a stack of human books, the titles written along the spines in the blocky phonetic English script. Isamud stared at the topmost book, mentally sounding out its title. Introduction to Physics His mate? he asked, the majority of his attention on the books. He wanted to snatch them out of her hands and examine them all, but respect for her rank and the knowledge that the grease on his fingers would stain them prevented him. Tony Stark She said the name carefully, without any particular emphasis. Tony sent them for me? Isamud began to reach for the topmost book, then caught himself. It hadn't all been lies, then. Not entirely. And if those books were what he thought they were, instruction manuals on human science, then given enough time, he could learn to distinguish the lies from the truth himself. Can you read these? Kamani asked, nodding at the books in her hands. They are in the human script. He nodded, unable to suppress a faint swell of pride. It will take time, months, perhaps, but with practice, yes. I am impressed as ever by your skill. Isamud looked away, feeling his ears twitch violently at the compliment. There will be little for our soldiers to do on the starships, she went on. I would have some of the Mechanicos teach them English, if they can spare the time, or any other species language that they know. There will be no use for it where we are going. No, she agreed, 
but there will be other species and other languages, and it will be easier for us to learn them then if we become accustomed to the task now. That it need not be shameful to speak another species' tongue. I will be busy with the power core and with my... He hesitated, and then, greatly daring, with my studies but I can provide you with a list of fellow mechanicos who have a skill for languages. Excellent. You have my thanks, mechanicos Isamud. With a jolt, Isamud realized that they had been conversing for several minutes without using one another's names or titles, in complete disregard of the rules for polite conversation, let alone a discussion with someone of vastly superior rank. He looked away, suddenly overwhelmed by what he thought he read in Kamani's clear black eyes, so expressive when the rest of her face was always so controlled, and wrapped his tail around his feet. You are welcome, Imperator, he managed. There was a long silence as Kamani stared at him, ears and tails so still that Isamud could read nothing from them. Once again, he was acutely conscious of the stains on his clothing and the terrible state of his fur. I was not aware, she said, after a moment, that Tony Stark was mated to a warrior. Not until I escorted the human imperator to his cell. It is... interesting, don't you think? Yes... Isamud agreed, his voice coming out slightly strangled. Humans are a very strange imperator. Not all of their ways are completely without value, however. Kamani's ears quivered slightly, as if she were aware of what blasphemy she spoke, and he looked away for a moment. Their fighting styles, for example, she added softly, and other things... Then she met his eyes again and went on, her voice brisk. You have observed the human scientist's construction of a new power core. Do you think it is possible for us to do the same? Isamud seized upon the new subject with relief, but also the faintest touch of disappointment. Now that we understand how and why it functions, eventually, it will take years, but we will do it. I am sure, Kamani said firmly, her tail brushing Isamud's for the barest fraction of a moment, that you will. The bar in Peacock Alley was sparsely stocked now. Nothing but gin and a few of the cheaper brands of whiskey left. They were collected against the long mirror behind the bar in a sad little huddle. One lone bottle of Malibu rum, a spot of white in the middle. Malibu was only 20% alcohol by volume, and toasting the end of the war should call for something more expensive than cheap whiskey, and classier than coconut-flavored rum anyway. She'd had the bartender pour her a shot of the most expensive gin remaining. She ought to be drinking champagne, but that had been gone for months. For the first time, she had nothing vital to do, and no mission tomorrow, so Steve and his Quinjet rules could both fuck off. Except... She had been here nearly a quarter of an hour, and she was still on her first drink. 
There was no real point, Carol reflected, staring down at the clear liquid in her glass. In celebratory drinking by yourself. Drinking to avoid thinking about something, or because it had been a shitty day and you'd earned it, or because you were upset and needed something to calm you down and take the edge off? Maybe. But not drinking to celebrate. It just felt... sad. Pathetic. All this time fighting with the resistance and she didn't have anyone to drink with. Not with half of the Avengers still injured and Steve alternately either dealing with the Argonian peace process and departure or hovering over Tony's bedside. She really had been isolating herself from the others, she realized, except for Wanda, and that was more due to Wanda's efforts than her own. She'd certainly done her best to avoid the other woman after the incident on the docks. The kiss. The kiss she had enjoyed, and then hated herself for enjoying. It was silly to call it an incident. The war was over, Carol reminded herself again. They had won. She ought to be happy. No more kids like Vance dying. No more of her friends being tortured. No more killing. She had assumed, once, that Steve would kick her out of the Avengers again once the aliens were gone. If they were ever gone. The fear seemed silly now. He hadn't treated her as anything but a subordinate officer and a friend in weeks. Months, even. It had only been her own fears and paranoia that had kept her from seeing that. Carol drained her glass, tossing it back in one long swallow, and set it back down on the bar. After weeks without a single drink, she could feel the burn of the alcohol, not just in her throat, but clear through her sinus cavities. It felt good, almost the way the burn of energy being absorbed into her body did. But she didn't signal the bartender for another. Steve wasn't here to be annoyed by it, and drinking just because she could didn't have as much appeal as she thought it would have, possibly because it was, on second thought, incredibly childish. Wanda would definitely have thought so. She had spent the past several days at Pietro's bedside, while Carol helped Fury and General Ross dismantle their ragtag little army. But she was all right. Even if Carol had barely gotten to speak to her since the subway platform, since her magic had nearly destroyed, at least she knew that she was okay. She would have heard about it if she weren't. Steve was spending every second of downtime he had up on the helicarrier with Tony. He would have told her. Steve and Tony... Now there was something she would never have expected. She wasn't sure what she would have thought of it three months ago. But now? They had all come so close to dying. Judging anyone seemed silly, unimportant. And who was she to judge these days, when Wanda was all she could think about half the time? Carol turned the empty glass around in her fingers and stared at it, trying to decide if she actually wanted another one. The burns on her hands left by Wanda's chaos magic had faded almost to invisibility, totally healed. There were a few faint pink marks just visible over the curve of her knuckles, but even those would be gone in another week. Then it would be as if it had never happened. The hotel's two bright lights glinted off the curve of the glass. The strange, white brightness seemed bizarrely alien now, after months of hurricane lamps and candles. Dim lighting seemed more natural in bars anyway. She was so absorbed in staring at her hands, 
at the newly healed pink scar tissue she almost never saw on herself anymore. That when she caught a flash of movement in her peripheral vision, she actually jumped a little, a sudden jolt of adrenaline making her heart pound. Argonians walked very softly when they took those black uniform boots off. The hotels should have been safe, but she still should have been paying attention to... Carol remembered that she didn't have to worry about that anymore, at the same time that she realized that Wanda had just sat down on the bar stool next to her. I'll have what she's having, she told the bartender, nodding at the empty glass in Carol's hands. She looked good, the grime and bruises from Argonian captivity gone. I thought you didn't drink, Carol said, trying to focus on something other than the dark curls of Wanda's hair and how thick and springy they would feel under her hands. Wanda smiled. I'm an energy mutant. I could probably drink most of the men in this room under the table. I just don't like having alcohol around Tony. Carol nodded. Probably a good idea. The bar around them glowed with light, the tiny collection of bottles shining like jewels and the endless stretch of the polished wooden bar gleaming. It could almost have been romantic. Wanda coming to join her at the sleekly expensive mirrored bar that had probably been in a dozen movies. They could almost have been in a movie themselves. Two lovers meeting again at the end of a war. Wanda would have to be wearing a long, slinky dress for that, and Carol a dress uniform. And she would have to be a man. And she would smile tiredly at Wanda and say, What's a nice energy mutant like you doing in a place like this? Wanda hesitated, staring down at the gin the bartender had handed her without drinking it. Then she looked up, meeting Carol's eyes. I wanted to thank you for helping me when the chaos magic was... She faltered and shook her head slightly, as if trying to shake an unpleasant memory away. I don't like to think about what I could have done. Carol shrugged. I barely did anything. You snapped yourself out of it when I touched you. You burned your hands, Wanda said, looking down at where Carol's fingers curled around her glass. I didn't know you could do that. Only a little, and I heal quickly. She hesitated. The memory of Wanda wreathed in chaos lightning, a stark and disturbing contrast to the present, then blurted out, I thought I was going to have to knock you out. I'm glad I didn't. I wasn't sure what that would do to you. Wanda made a face. I'm glad you didn't, too. You could have broken my jaw. She was silent for a moment, staring at Carol with an intensity that made her want to squirm in her seat. And then she said softly, You brought me back to myself. I would have been lost without you. The magic would have destroyed me. What did you say to something like that? Carol stared down at her hands, feeling small and petty for all those months she had resented Wanda, for the way she had punished her for making her see things about herself that she hadn't wanted to admit to. I used to be jealous of you, you know. My powers were fading, and yours seemed to be stronger and better controlled than ever. I had no idea they could be so... violent. Or so beautiful. And they had been. Wanda, surrounded by the fires of her magic, had been awe-inspiringly beautiful, her skin glowing as if lit from within, and her eyes burning with light, too bright and otherworldly to touch. I'm sorry I left you, she said, on the waterfront. I had no right to treat you that way, 
You deserved better from me. Wanda shook her head, waving Carol's complete lack of professionalism away. I shouldn't have assumed you were interested. In me, I mean. Carol took a deep breath and forced the words out. No, you were right. I was just... I couldn't see it at first. You saw it before I did. Admitting it made her face burn, but she felt an odd relief as soon as she had said it. It was true. She had noticed Wanda's body from the first. The curve of her hips and breasts, the softness of her skin, the delicate lines of her high cheekbones, the way she had felt in her arms, so light and fragile, despite the muscle Carol knew lay under her loose, flowing clothing. She had noticed Jessica Drew, too, back when they had been on a team together, but had told herself that anyone would, that she was simply objectively noting the other woman's attractiveness. It felt freeing to acknowledge what it all really meant, not to lie to herself anymore. She couldn't remember feeling any attraction to women before her memories had been stolen, but she couldn't remember feeling any attraction, either romantic or sexual, to anyone other than Marcus. One more thing he and Rogue had both taken from her. Would she have figured things out earlier if the two of them had never touched her? Had she known, at some level, that she wasn't straight before her memories had been lost? Had that been why the thought of it had bothered her so much? It didn't matter. All of that was past now. Marcus was in the past now, and she had to move on and start paying attention to what was important now. She had come painfully close to losing her place on the Avengers forever, through her own stubbornness, and she had nearly lost Wanda to the Argonians, the other woman could have died still thinking Carol was disgusted by her, never knowing how she actually felt. You were right, she repeated. I... I liked it when you kissed me. I don't know why I panicked. It all seems really stupid now. And then they took you and... She broke off, shaking her head. There are more important things than my problems. You could have died. I shouldn't have come on to you so quickly. I should have said something first. I was there when Marcus took you away. I didn't mean to scare you off. You... Carol faltered, wanting to say that Wanda hadn't and that she hadn't been afraid, and knowing that that wasn't true. I shouldn't have reacted the way I did. I don't want to lose you as a friend. Wanda shook her head. You haven't. You saved me, remember? Probably Pietro, too. If you hadn't snapped me out of it, we never would have gotten him to help in time. Carol would have sworn Pietro was dead when they had found him. There was a certain look people had when all the life had gone out of them, and she had become far more familiar with it over the past few months than she wanted to be. And then Wanda's magic surrounded them, twisting and distorting everything, and he had only been unconscious, badly injured but still alive, they had probably just made a mistake at first, jumping to the worst possible conclusions out of fear, but still. No. No one had that kind of power. He had been alive. They just hadn't seen it. Hadn't looked closely enough. How is Pietro? Is he... He had looked like hell, his entire torso a mass of ragged cuts, and his skin bloodlessly pale. He's much better, Wanda said, and Carol could hear the relief and fondness in her tone. He's always healed quickly. 
He's insulting the medical staff's competence and demanding to be let out of bed and calling everyone an idiot. She said it as if it was a good thing. I don't know what I would have done if he had died. Carol put a hand on her shoulder, her skin warm under her fingers. The blouse Wanda wore left her shoulder bare, and her skin was every bit as soft as it looked by candlelight. Wanda shivered, and Carol realized abruptly that she was rubbing slow circles against Wanda's collarbone with her thumb. What she had intended as a friendly, comforting gesture was turning into something else. Carol was the one who leaned forward first. Wanda wasn't likely to make the first move again, after the rejection she had handed her, and despite the stomach-churning terror it filled her with, sliding one hand into Wanda's hair and pressing her lips against her felt right, like something she should have done a long time ago. The first kiss had been desperate, a crazy thing brought on by fear and relief and adrenaline. This one was more tentative, both of them feeling things out. Carol half expected Wanda to shove her away. She certainly deserved it at this point. But she didn't. Closing her eyes and leaning into Carol's touch, her lips parted and she sucked at Carol's lower lip, sending hot shivers through her. It wasn't so different, really, from kissing a man. Apparently, the first kiss hadn't been a momentary aberration after all. She had been stupid, Carol decided, as she and Wanda broke apart, ever to try and convince herself that it was. I don't know how good at this I'm going to be, she admitted. Her hand was still on Wanda's shoulder. Wanda laid her own hand on the curve of Carol's hip, and Carol ignored the avid way the bartender was staring at them and didn't pull away. Let him think what he wanted. It's not something you have to be good at, Wanda said, as long as you want to try. After Ocknight after Ocknight spent living there, the golden and pinkish marble of the human rail station had begun to seem familiar, welcoming, and the array of tunnels beneath it to become something almost like a home. But now, once again, they were leaving crowded into the starships and fleeing towards an uncertain destination for the second time since Argon's destruction. The fact that it was what Urkala had wanted, something she had worked and planned for for almost the entirety of their time on Earth, did not make the humiliation and shame of having to bow her head and lower her ears to humans any less. An entire crowd of human rulers and officers had gathered on the deck of the helicarrier, Yet another overly obvious human name, to observe their final departure. Their blandly similar features distinguished only by difference in coloration. At least the American Imperator was distinctive in his bright red and blue uniform. The rest of the human dignitaries all wore jackets and trousers in muted colors, with no insignia or indications of rank to decorate them, save for the handful of uniformed human soldiers. For a civilized world, Earth had an appalling small number of warriors in government positions. It was no wonder it had fallen so quickly at first, as the countless human tribal leaders and councils had argued over what actions to take and struggled to mobilize armies meant for fighting one another, rather than for common defense. Earth had never had an Archon, never had the equivalent of a Lulum to unite them. In some ways, it might have been better if they had if Nurgle's original plan to conquer them had failed. 
Nurgle's foolish plan to conquer and hold Earth had cost them over a thousand Argonian lives, lives they did not have to spare, and nearly a third of an Argonian solar year. Urkala's control over the shattered remains of the Empire was complete and unquestioned now, but it had come at a heavy cost. Urkala inclined her head toward the short, dark-skinned human who served as the Secretary General of their United Nations. They were all short humans, most of them no taller than she was, and said, We are honored by your generosity and mercy. Our ships stand ready to depart in accordance with the treaty. We could not have prepared them so swiftly without your people's assistance. The words felt sour in her mouth, but so much time smiling at Nurgle and observing all the forms of politeness when all she truly desired was to snarl at him had taught her how to hide her feelings well. Owing gratitude to a lesser species galled, but the humans had, indeed, been generous. The human dignitary inclined his head in return and said something in two human languages, first a tongue Urkala did not recognize, and then in English. We wish you good fortune on your journey, Imperator Kamani translated. The twin copper shoulder boards of her new rank gleamed in the too bright sun, heavy with copper braid, and the heeled slash through her left ear gave her a distinguished appearance. She had deliberately refused to have it stitched, and had left her ear notched as a sign of their defeat. But it would look like a dueling scar, and provide her a new air of gravity, which she must have been aware of. We regret the lives lost in the past months, and look forward to a new future of beneficial diplomatic relations as soon as you reach your new planet. Urkala, observing the way the humans all eyed her honor guard with open unease and distrust, imagined that the true meaning behind the speech was probably something like, please go somewhere far away and never ever come back. The humans' various regional governments had all argued over whether or not to accept Urkala's surrender, or demand concessions and restitution for the numerous human dead and the destruction the fighting had caused in human cities. In the end, the terms of the surrender that Stephen Rogers had declared had stood. Her people would leave, and they would never return. It was very little, truly, when compared with what the victors might have demanded. The power core that remained in place beneath the Grand Central was likewise a small concession given that a newly built replica of it was powering one of the starships even now. The formal leave-taking extended for some time, as human after human made speeches, some of them significantly less polite than the secretary generals. Urkala kept her face smooth, her ears up, and her tail still, ignoring the way the sunlight beating down on them hurt her eyes. They might be leaving in defeat, but she was not going to show weakness. She might not be a warrior, but she was still a child of Alulam, and though the humans who stared resentfully at her believed her cowed and broken, she knew that, when it came to what truly counted, she had won. The double octet of her honor guard stood equally stiffly, none of them flinching from the sunlight, and she allowed herself a moment's pride in them. We are going now, she said, when the speeches had finally ended as Imperator Rogers has commanded. She walked towards the transport parked on the far end of the helicarrier's deck, 
its copper-decorated hall, a stark contrast against the utilitarian ugliness around them. Her path brought her level with Roger's. His uniform had been repaired until no sign of the damage Nurgle had done to it remained. And the shield that had broken Nurgle's tail blade, stripping him of his final weapon, and condemning him to the most ignominious of deaths, gleamed brightly in his hand. She stopped, her honor guard coming to a halt behind her, and turned to face him. He was tall, for human, enough that Urkala actually had to look up slightly to meet his oddly small eyes, a strange pale blue that made him look blind. Thank you, she said in English, sounding out the syllables carefully. She had memorized the sounds carefully, making Kamani repeat them to her over and over. He would not understand the depth of the honor she did him by addressing him in his own language, when no archon since Alulam had lowered her or himself to speak the language of the enemy. But that did not matter. She knew. You were a worthy adversary. Your honor will be remembered. Honor, in those who were not Argonian, everything they once knew had changed. Imperator Roger's eyes widened in surprise, and his reply back to her was stiff, as if he too were hiding a desire to pull his ears back and lash his tail. My tactics were not very honorable, Kamani translated. No, Urkala thought, but they had worked, and who was she? who had come within moments of poisoning Nurgle, to criticize them. Thank you, she said again, secure in the knowledge that no other Argonian present, save Kamani, could understand her. For ridding me of Nurgle. Imperator Rogers looked startled for a second, and then he nodded. It was a pleasure, Archon. She turned her back on him then, and walked toward the transport vessel, head and tail high, not looking back. It was time for them to leave. Everything had changed, and the Argon that once was was truly lost to them. Retaking it had been a dream, if a seductive one. Even they themselves had changed. They had no more slaves, though a small handful of human soldiers had chosen to leave with them. And their mechanicos had, ironically, recovered much knowledge that was lost even as so much else was destroyed. And the Mechanicos, she suspected, would not be content with the limited power tradition accorded them for much longer, after observing the humans' chaotic near-lack of social boundaries. It was a problem that would have to be dealt with when they reached the coordinates Dr. Reed Richards had given them and began to build their new world. The very chaos and disorder of human society proved that division between warrior and Mechanicos were needed but the Empire depended on knowledge for survival as much as it did on strength of arms. They were the blades in the dark, but a blade was useless if the wielder did not know where to strike, and a blade must be forged by someone. Had they stayed on Earth as long as Nurgle had wished them to, it would have destroyed them all. Their new destination, with its red sun and freshwater oceans, could be the saving of them. It would have to serve as their new home, as their center to what would, someday, be their new empire. It would take years, generations most likely, 
but Argon would rise from the ashes of their defeat. Someday they would be great once again. They already let Hank and Pietro go home, Tony pointed out, with what he thought was admirable reason and restraint. They're only keeping me in the infirmary because my medical history combined with my bank account makes doctors nervous. Clint folded his arms across his chest and gave Tony his best imitation of Steve's stern look. As usual, it was significantly less intimidating coming from him. Pietro heals faster than normal people, and Hank talked his way out because one of the nurses has a crush on him. And anyway, Cap specifically ordered me to make sure you stay in bed. The bruises on his face had healed enough that raising his eyebrows was possible again. And you always do exactly what Cap tells you to do? Tony asked sarcastically. That's a change. His broken ribs were slowly re-knitting. Vitamin C supplement, having completely reversed the onset of scurvy. And while the collection of injuries the Imperator had left him with were healing a little less quickly than they normally would have. They were healing. All he needed in terms of medical care now was rest. And he could get that just as easily at home. Or, well... In the hotel suite, the Avengers had made their temporary home. The lack of privacy here reminded him of the converter room, an impression that the sterile blankness of the steel walls only furthered. Clint, unfortunately, had developed a protective streak to rival Steve's in the last few months, and was stubbornly refusing to let Tony move so much as a step from his curtained-off little room. If I let you re-injure yourself or something, he's going to break my nose. All you're going to do is be sarcastic to me. Tony swung his legs over the edge of the bed and stood, ignoring the flare of pain from his half-heeled ribs. Happy's borrowed sweatpants hung low over his hips, the cuffs trailing on the floor, and he resisted the urge to tug them up. They were better than a hospital gown, or the blandly utilitarian hospital scrubs they had replaced. He always felt faintly pathetic wearing those, and the effect wouldn't have helped his case that he was fit to leave. All I'm going to do, he said, holding on to his temper with an effort, is take a flying car back to the hotel to sit around with Hank to talk about rebuilding Vision and Jocasta. You can come with me to make sure I don't accidentally fall on a razor-sharp computer circuit and die. Or are you still avoiding him because your grand romance with Jan didn't work out? That last came out more harshly than he had intended. But boredom and the continual nagging aches whenever he tried to move had worn all of his patients away. Shield's medical staff had first cut back and then discontinued the painkillers they had been giving him, at Tony's insistence. The burns on his chest still hurt and the stitches in his side pulled whenever he moved, but it was preferable to the way the medication made him feel. The fuzzy distance it gave him was too much like being drunk. And not having to remember every detail of the last few months was a temptation he wasn't sure he could resist if he were exposed to it too long. I couldn't help it, Cat, Clint said, addressing the empty air in a mocking sing-song. I know you're four inches taller and fifty pounds heavier than me and can kill alien warlords with your bare hands, but he was being sarcastic. Are you going to spend the rest of your life babysitting me? Tony snapped. No. Clint shot back, with a smile that was distinctly strained around the edges. 
just the part of my life where you're still in a hospital bed, and Cap asked me to. Gambling that Clint would draw the line at actually using physical force to keep him from leaving. Tony began edging slowly towards the white curtains that blocked his bed off from the rest of the infirmary. I'll get Rhodey to come and fly me down. Knowing Rhodey, he'd probably jump at any excuse to drive one of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s flying cars. That is, if he'd forgiven Tony for letting him assume that he was dead for five months. Maybe he ought to ask Happy. Steve won't even know until I'm already back at the hotel. You can tell him Happy strong-armed you. He took another step backwards towards the curtain and ran directly into something large and warm and approximately as solid as one of the helicarrier's metal walls. Strong-armed him into what? Steve's voice said, directly into his ear. Tony resisted the desire to melt back against Steve, to let all that strength and solidity hold him upright and protect him. He was fine, he reminded himself. He was healing. He had He'd kept it together for months down there in the converter room, despite the Argonians watching his every move and the dank, clammy cave feeling that had Afghanistan sleeping into his dreams. He was fine, and wilting against Steve like the heroine in a bad romance novel wasn't going to help him convince anyone of that fact. All I'm going to do is sit in the hotel room with Hank and work on Jocasta and Vision, he said as he turned around taking a step back so that he was no longer inside Steve's personal space. Steve's eyes narrowed, and his jaw set in that particular way that meant, I am Captain America, do not argue with me. Tony, you nearly died. They're still not sure what long-term effects this might have on your heart. You need to... rest. Tony held up both hands, palms out, and then wished he hadn't as his sleeves rode up the edges of the bandages on his wrist. I know. And I can do that at home. I mean, at the hotel. Lying around here isn't going to do me any more good than lying around there will. No, Steve said firmly. You didn't see yourself. I did. You're staying here until the doctors release you. Here in a huge echoing room full of people, with doctors and nurses watching day and night, in too bright lighting and nothing to do but lie there and think. No, I'm not staying here. I need something to do, and Hank needs my help. And Rhodey's still wearing half my armor patched in with his, and if I don't get what's left of it back, old Shellhead will end up with nothing but a bunch of disassembled circuits replacing damaged bits of the war machine armor. And I promised Jocasta I'd rebuild her. I promised. Steve was looking at him strangely. Tony abruptly realized that his voice had risen in volume, and that the hand gestures he was making were too broad, too aggressive. He took a deep breath and forced himself to drop his hands, to look down. Please, he said quietly. It's been months since I touched my armor, months since I even saw the sky. Since he'd held a tool in his hands to do anything other than the Argonians' bidding or to sabotage them, he would probably need to use an arc welder to take Rhodey's armor apart. Portions of it had fused together from plasma gun damage. It must take him a good twenty minutes to get in and out of it that way, and his maneuverability was compromised. He would be fine, Tony told himself. It would be fun. He would tear Rhodey's armor down and rebuild it with the proper replacement parts, and he wouldn't think of the way the Imperator had held the electrified branding iron against his skin. He wouldn't let them take that away from him. 
if Afghanistan couldn't, and the Mandarin couldn't, and Immortus couldn't, and Justin Hammer and Obadiah Stane couldn't, then no one was going to. Especially not someone who was already dead. I really think you should... Steve started. But Tony could tell he was wavering. I just want to go home. He interrupted. With you. He left the last bit unsaid. He wasn't willing to be quite that pathetic in front of Clint. But Steve must have heard it anyway. Because his face softened, and he reached out to lay a hand on Tony's shoulder. Even through his gloves, his fingers were warm, and Tony automatically leaned into the touch. No one had touched him for any reason other to inflict pain in so long that he'd barely been able to remember what it felt like. No one but Steve. Okay, Steve said, and Tony couldn't hold back his grin of relief and joy, even though it made him aware of the bruises on his face all over again. Great, he said. Let's go now. Does this mean I'm free? Clint said, from behind them. Because I have months of archery practice to catch up on. Steve nodded, not taking his eyes from Tony. Unless Fury finds you before you can get off the helicarrier. For what? The aliens are gone, there's nobody to translate for anymore, and I can start forgetting that I ever knew their stupid language. See you guys later, he added. And then, to Tony... There was orange juice in the fridge, on the second shelf down, and Wanda promised Pietro she'd make some kind of transient dessert that has seven layers of chocolate filling tonight. Carol really likes chocolate, Steve observed, in an amused tone that told Tony that he was missing something. Clint smirked. Carol can fight me and Quicksilver for it. Original teammates get first dibs. I think she could take you, Tony told him. Probably, Clint admitted. I'll just claim I'm saving it for Cap. He left with a bounce in his step that might almost have convinced Tony that he was completely unaffected by the last half year. If it wasn't for the fact that he'd seen him sleeping in the chair by Tony's bed, his fingers locked around the hilt of the Argonian short sword he had only taken off a few days ago, after they had left Earth for good. Steve turned back to Tony, eyeing his bare feet in two large sweatpants. Were you planning on walking out of here barefoot? Yes, Tony said, with all the dignity and self-assurance he could muster. He hadn't actually planned anything beyond convincing Clint to let him escape, and getting someone to fly him down to the hotel. But Steve didn't need to know that. Ten minutes later, Tony had a pair of brand-new shield-issue combat boots, as well as shield uniform pants that actually fit him, and they were heading for the flying car hangar on the second deck. You're going to lie down as soon as we get to the hotel. As soon as I finish talking to Hank, Tony agreed. I haven't slept in a real bed in months, except for that one night with you. Steve was silent for almost a full minute after that, punching in the command code to open the door to the hangar, with more force than was technically necessary. The hangar was halfway empty compared to the last time Tony had seen it. Shield's fleet of flying cars whittled down to a bare dozen. Several of them showed signs of battle damage. A large dent had crumpled the back quarter panel of the closest one. And several had long, black scorch marks blistering their paint. Steve shut the door behind them, his eyes on the little keypad as he reset the security codes. It almost killed me to give you up again after that, you know? 
despite the ache in his ribs and the raw throbbing of the partially healed burns on his chest. Tony felt a sudden rush of gratitude that their positions hadn't been reversed. He couldn't have sent Steve back in there to his probable death. He wasn't strong enough or unselfish enough for that. I know, he said quietly, because he was selfish. He couldn't help but feel a small, guilty warmth that Steve had feared for him. It shouldn't have, but it made going back in feel worth it. The knowledge that not only had he been fixing his mistakes and making up for his failure to act earlier, but that Steve loved him. That Steve hadn't wanted to let him go. That Steve was proud of him. I keep thinking about it, down there, he added after a moment. He forced himself to look up, to meet Steve's eyes. He had thought about those eyes more times than he could count in the converter room, and in the bright lighting of the hangar, they were every bit as blue as he had remembered. Steve's blonde eyelashes, nearly invisible in the sunlight, showed up better here. And Tony could see a trace of colorless blonde stubble along his jaw. It would feel rough under his fingers, or against his face. It was what got me through it, when the Imperator was... His voice faltered. The feel of cold metal cuffs digging into his wrists suddenly strong enough that it was all he could do not to rub at them. He's been able to smell his own flesh burning, overpowering the sweet, musky scent of Argonian fur. I closed my eyes, he went on, forcing his voice to stay steady, and told myself I was back there with you. Steve winced, his jaw tightening, and Tony cursed himself inwardly. He shouldn't have mentioned that. He shouldn't have reminded Steve what had happened. If Tony had been the one to walk in and find Steve in that cell, it would have broken him. He was racking his brain for something light and flirtatious to say, some way to change the subject. When Steve took a step closer and wrapped his arms around him, pulling Tony against his chest, gently, more mindful of Tony's injuries than Tony was, I couldn't let myself think about you, he said in a low, choked voice. It would have destroyed me, thinking about you in their hands, about what they might be doing to you. Steve smelled like leather and human skin and the faintest hint of hospital antiseptic. Tony closed his eyes and buried his face in the junction of Steve's neck and shoulder for a moment, breathing the scent in. Steve's arms around him were as warm and as strong as he remembered, and was murmuring something meaningless and comforting in Tony's ear, his breath warm against Tony's cheek. This is what he had held on for. It almost made the pain worth it. Steve pressed a kiss against the side of Tony's head, an utterly chaste gesture that sent a tingling jolt through his body despite its intention. The memory of Steve's hands on him, his body underneath Tony's, a taste of him, flashed through Tony's mind again. He let go of Steve's waist and pulled his face from Steve's shoulder, reaching up to pull his cowl back. It doesn't matter, he said, kissing the corner of Steve's jaw. The brickle of blonde stubble rough against his lips. It doesn't matter. Steve turned his head towards Tony, and Tony swallowed whatever he was going to say in return, with an open-mouthed kiss, plunging his tongue into Steve's mouth, and letting his hand slide down the rough-edged scale mail of his costume until he hit the smooth leather over Steve's ass. It would have been better without the costume, he thought. Better with skin under his hands. It's over, he said the words coming out muffled against Steve's lips. Kissing Steve tasted different this time. The faint hint of blood from his own damaged gums absent, 
long healed by vitamins and nutrition supplements. He had thought that he would never get to do this again, that he wouldn't survive to do this again, to bury himself in Steve and forget. Steve broke the kiss, turning his face away. You are still injured. I don't want to... You won't hurt me, Tony interrupted, dipping his head to mouth at the exposed line of Steve's neck. I'm not that fragile. He nipped Steve's earlobe, and Steve shivered, but didn't reciprocate. Tony, you have broken ribs, 14 stitches in your side, and you're covered in burns and bruises. That was probably a valid practical consideration, but letting go of Steve and stepping back took an effort of will. Tony put all the frustrated desire and humiliatingly needy longing that he felt into his voice. As he said, Trust me, we can work around that. Steve actually blushed just a little, or maybe his skin was already flush from what they'd been doing. It did that, Tony had already discovered, to his not-so-secret delight. Take me someplace that isn't riddled with fury security cameras, Tony went on, belatedly remembering the man's ever-present surveillance. And I'll prove it to you. Steve smiled for a moment, but the expression faded quickly. He reached up to touch Tony's face, his thumb brushing over the bruise on Tony's cheekbone, the one he'd asked Steve to give him. It was mostly healed now, at that stage where bruises faded to greenish-yellow, but it was still slightly sore to the touch. Tony found himself leaning into the pressure of Steve's fingers anyway. Steve smiled for a moment, but the expression faded quickly. He reached up to touch Tony's face, his thumb brushing over the bruise on Tony's cheekbone, the one he'd asked Steve to give him. It was mostly healed now, at that stage where bruises faded to greenish-yellow, but it was still slightly sore to the touch. Tony found himself leaning into the pressure of Steve's fingers anyway. I shouldn't have sent you back in. Steve's voice was low. The words aimed more at himself than Tony. His eyes held the same haunted look they had had in the kitchen, when he told Tony that he didn't want to lose him. We've lost too many people already, he'd said. And Tony, hearing the catch in his voice, had known that he'd really meant, I've lost too many people already. Tony frowned at him, and turned his face away from Steve's touch, forcing him to let go. I volunteered, I told you, remember? Vance wasn't your fault. What happened to me wasn't your fault. Bucky wasn't your fault either. He waved one hand for emphasis, then halted the motion with a controlled wince when it made his ribs twinge. People die in wars, he reminded Steve again, though it felt ridiculously redundant to be saying that to someone who'd been watching people die on the battlefield decades before Tony had been born. People get hurt. You know that better than any of us. Steve shook his head his mouth tightening to a thin line. I wish I didn't. I wish none of us had to learn it. I would have challenged the Imperator to single combat months ago if I'd known that I could. Tony could hear the pain in his voice, and under it, the guilt and regret. No, he thought. Guilt was something Tony was long familiar with, but not something Steve deserved. Not here, not over this. He had done more, fought harder, to defeat the Argonians than any three people, keeping up a confident front for the resistance, 
and pouring out his doubts and worries only to Tony. They would have lost long ago without his leadership. Tony and Clint would have probably died in an Argonian prison, or else Tony would have spent the rest of his life preparing Argonian technology and trying and failing to work up the courage to strike back at them. Tony turned away, stepping to the nearest flying car and reaching for the driver's side door. Not while our Captain Mamitu was still around, he said. You never met her. She wouldn't have surrendered to a human, no matter who won that fight. We ought to have given our Captain Kamami a medal for helping to liberate Earth. The door stuck. The dented metal reluctant to move, and he gave the handle a sharp jerk, pulling the door free by brute force. The hinges had been damaged, probably from the stress the warped metal was putting on them. His ribs and stitches both protested the exertion, but he refused to let it show. It wasn't too late for Steve to decide they were turning around and going back to the infirmary. Tony moved to climb into the car, but Steve beat him to it, stopping Tony with a hand on his shoulder, and then stepping around him to slide behind the wheel. Tony's lip twitched in spite of himself. Steve was so predictable sometimes. And he obediently circled the car and got in on the passenger side. Did you get the feeling that there was infighting amongst the Argonian High Command that we didn't know about? Steve asked, as he closed the door. The Archon seemed suspiciously eager to leave. If the Archon had been half as intelligent as she had seemed, she had to have recognized that the Argonian's position on Earth had become a long-term strategic nightmare by the end of their occupation. The Imperator had the light of true fanaticism in his eyes when he'd questioned Tony, something Tony had seen in enough supervillains to recognize. But Kamami and Izumut had seemed less certain, and Kamami was now the Archon's right-hand woman, newly promoted in the Imperator's place, and probably grateful for the advancement. The animosity between her and Mamitu had been factional as well as personal, Tony would have bet money on it. And the Archon had said thank you to Steve before leaving. In English. He wasn't sure Steve really realized how much that meant. You made her the sole ruler of the Argonian Empire, he said. The car's engine started. The grinding noise it made as it turned over made Tony wince. Shield's cars were in worse shape than Rhodey's armor. Just listening to the sound the transmission made as Steve shifted gears made him itch to start tearing the thing's engine block apart, or at the very least check the metal deck beneath it for leaking oil or transmission fluid. Still, it would hold up long enough to get them home. The slight wobble in his hover was minor, probably due to damage to one of the wheels. Do you think they'll be back? Steve asked, as he flew the car towards the hangar door. It opened automatically as they approached it the car triggering its proximity sensors, and the sunlight that poured in from outside was blinding. Tony lifted a hand to shield his eyes, squinting into the glare. Not in our lifetime, he said, and wasn't sure if he felt relief at that thought or not. He would never know if Azumud had been able to decipher the textbooks he'd had Steve give him. Never know what discoveries he might make with that new knowledge. Our grandchildren had better look out, though. Once they finish rebuilding their population, they're probably going to try to take over the galaxy. He shook his head, thinking of the Argonians' bone-deep sense of their own superiority and their lethal combat skills. Who knows, they might even succeed. The car flew out of the hangar and into the open sky. The door sliding shut silently behind them. I'm just glad they're gone. 
Steve said, the words barely audible over the wind. After months indoors and underground, the horizon seemed impossibly distant. The sky, a dizzyingly vast blue dome overhead, yawningly empty space surrounded them, and for a moment, Tony thought longingly of his armor, of the freedom of flying on his own, without the clunky bulk of a car or plane surrounding him. Tony was used to seeing New York City from above, but he had somehow forgotten how tall the buildings were, how wide and green Central Park was, the way the rivers glittered in the sunlight. It was a beautiful city. Why the hell did he keep spending so much time in California? Then his eyes finally began adjusting to the bright light, and details began to jump out at him: the shattered buildings, the piles of rubble that were all that remained of Penn Station and Madison Square Garden, the burned-out shell of the MetLife Building, looming empty and dead over the untouched splendor of Grand Central, the construction scaffolding that already covered several of the buildings in Times Square. The city was scarred and damaged, but it had survived. And it was going to recover. It, in some ways, had already started. Steve's fingers suddenly brushed over his knuckles, hovering there for a moment. Then he laid his hand on top of Tony's, wrapping his fingers around it. Tony looked up from the partially repaired wreckage of New York. Something inside his chest twisted at the sight of Steve. His hand relaxed on the steering wheel, and the blazing sunlight turning his wind-blown hair gold. He was staring down at the city too, a small smile on his face. Tony had almost forgotten what his smiles were like. Then Steve looked over at him. The smile on his face broadened into a grin. They're gone, he repeated, as if he were only now letting himself really believe it. It's over. I'm so glad it's over. Tony closed his eyes and tipped his head back, letting the sun shine on his face. He curled his fingers around Steve's, reveling in the warmth. So am I, he said. The end.